wanted to show that the, you know a group of middle-aged women could still be athletic and we could compete at the highest level I feel very happy in myself that I've done this incredible thing that I've been out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in, in a rowing boat that so few people have in the whole world and you know I don't think of myself as an extraordinary person but I've done an extraordinary thing and that's something that you know you do think that you can die happy you know if you've done something like that. Hey, what is up? Welcome to Last Stroke Counts. Today's guest is an Atlantic rower, former Oxford Blue, former freelance journalist, and currently the CEO of the Health Lottery. Please welcome Levy Ayres to the podcast. Hi, nice to see you. Thanks for coming. Um, yeah, another one. We've been a long time. We were just saying um, it's been a while since we, we spoke to you, but like really fun to get into this. And I think different from some of the guests we've had before. But I like different. It's good. Um, there's loads. There's so much stuff we'll we'll get into. So I think it'll be a fun one. Yeah, we've been planning this episode since May, where we run into uh, then that's called regatta promoting uh, the red row machine we were uh, giving away at that time to raise money for our friends who are currently doing the Atlantic Rowing Challenge this year. And then you very kindly said that you actually took part in one yourself. Yeah, well, any excuse to talk about rowing across the Atlantic, I don't mind. I'm happy to talk about it for hours on end. So, uh, yeah, it's really nice to be here and chat about it. Brilliant. We'll get into it, definitely. Um, but uh, I think, um, again, we say it's really interesting to find out how people get into rowing. So how how did that start for you? Well, I think the first time that rowing really sort of impinged on my life is with my sister was a rower. So my sister was at Oxford and then she she was at Oxford, I think, sort of 87, um, 86 to 90, something like that. And she's tall, taller than me, over six foot. Her, her name's Annabelle. And so she was naturally recruited quite quickly, although she did resist it for the first year because she's an artist. And so being an artist, being a rower, not necessarily compatible. Um, but she was at Pembroke. So then yeah. she got into the Pembroke boat and then very quickly got into the Oxford boat um and I, think, I can't remember actually if they I think she might have lost the first one and then won second year and then she quickly got into team GB as well but I have to say that I did enjoy going to support her and going to the boat race and getting involved in all of that world but I was um six years younger than her and so I was a teenager at the time sort of 13 14 and I think I vowed never to become a rower, never to set foot in a boat out of board by the whole conversation. I mean, sit around the table, um, her and her then boyfriend, a guy called Wade Hall Craggs, who I mean, he's coached at Durham um, until relatively recently. But I mean, oh, Wade, yeah, Wade's yeah. a big name. A lot of people listening will know Wade, yeah. He's a, he's a bit of a legend up in Durham. Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the conversation was always about rowing. So if you can imagine, I was just a grumpy teenager sitting at the table. Um, but then I went to Oxford myself, went to Exeter College and then, you know, it's the kind of thing you do, you joined in the novice rowing and so I did Christchurch Regatta um, and then discovered I was quite good at it and then got into the Exeter first boat. And so in the first couple of years I did classics, so it's a four year course, so do your exams at the end of um, the spring term in the second year, so I didn't trial for 
for the blue boat in, in the second year, but waiting until the third year. As I always remember getting the training program for the first time and looking at it and just going, I have double outing on Saturday and Sunday morning, it's impossible. I'll never be able to do that, you know. And this sort of real moment of shock and sort of thinking, God, and then doing it. And then, I mean, that's that. It was, uh, so I did two years of rowing for Oxford. First year, I was in the blue boat until right at the end was dropped with about three weeks to go. Which had its own set of trauma, but um, links to the ocean row, uh, which I will explain. Um, and then the second year, or my final year, but second year of rowing for Oxford, came back and, and that was sort of fairly, no dramas in the view boat, you sort of word go until the race, which we then unfortunately lost. Um, I did I did a year after that, I rode at Tiger Race Gullers mm-hmm. in London and um, and then we we won the gold medal in the Nat Champs um, and then re- went on to row up to as England and the England, Scotland. Home international regattas. Yeah, right home yeah. international regattas. Yeah. We were lucky that we we our year was in Cork, so we didn't have to go to Nottingham uh, or Strathclyde. Um, so we got to go to Cork. That was really good fun. My, mine was in Cardiff when was I it? when I rode for yeah. England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I rode for Wales and Cardiff in two thousand and five, which was good. But then I coached uh, the men's wife team, and we went we went over to Ireland, which was it's a nice place to go. But it was yeah, it's a bit of a ball late getting there. Yeah, and again yeah. a ferry over from from Pembroke and. Uh, yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, the ferry was. Yeah, we. I think we flew. I think made it slightly easier. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a big team, sort of eighty athletes now for the men, the women, and the junior team, about twenty in each on each side. So yeah, and it's a, a official world rowing event. I was talking to someone the other day about it now, and saying it gets a little bit of a bad rap because it's not GB. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a, like yeah. a good standard, and we were just like ticking off some names of some great rowers who started there and then went went into some other stuff. So I think it's a good regatta. Still going. Yeah, still going strong. So, um, yeah, so from from not liking it, I guess like the one thing I kind of laugh about rowing is like it's got its own language, it's difficult to follow, and it's just it just attracts these people with a bit of an obsessive nature. Isn't it? We used to go, oh, yeah, like on a Saturday night, if we'd go out, we'd say beforehand, right, everyone, we're not going to talk about rowing. Like, we're just going to leave when we're not talking about rowing. You know, then you're in the pub at 9 p.m. discussing your 500 meter splits. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah. No, no, no. We said, we, like, no, everyone, stop, stop, stop. And you just need to slowly kind of like creep back into it. So, yeah, I can see from the outside how it would just be like, oh. I know. Well, I think everyone's probably, all rowers have probably read that paragraph in Lessons from Chemistry. Uh, was it Lessons from Chemistry? I think it was Lessons from Chemistry, which is that very popular book, which is now a series on Netflix or something. And it has. If you haven't read it, it has a paragraph very early on, um, which is basically about rowers and their obsession and uh, how they'll do exactly that on a night out and end up telling you about their t-dex, what their two K is. And you know, I have a forty. And my kids are seventeen and fourteen, and they're both rowers. And uh, my husband is. I think he gets very bored at the uh, dinner table. Oh, is it not a, not a rower himself? Not a rower. I haven't managed to get him into a boat. No, I did get him on a paddleboard this summer. But easy, it was a bit wobbly. It's not a plan of the water. So yeah, who did we speak to? Who said that? Oh, was it Lola? Who was like, I'm really scared of water. <laughs> but she went out. She actually was it. Um, Cardboy Scholars as well. I think where she where she started. No, Lola started at uh, Surbiton. Yeah, yeah. But then she said she went. I think she just went went out and did a bit of tide weight and was like happy that that's where she learned how to scull because it was a bit palmer caught at the time or whatever it's a bit wider and she wasn't too worried about it but yeah it's quite funny some 
they were saying like, oh how can you be a row and be scared of water and she's like well i like being on the water not in the yeah, water. yeah yeah yeah. actually yeah that's interesting i i prefer i definitely prefer being on the water and and my uh, my sister is a big swimmer so now she does sort of cold into swimming and stuff like that but um, she doesn't row as much as she used to, but um, yeah, I prefer being. I definitely prefer being on the water. Yeah. So getting into rowing um, was that sort of? Did you want to sort of do what your sister done? Did you find that as like an annoying thing? I mean, my my younger brother at school really was turned off by rowing by being told you could be good like your brother. You could be good like your brother. He's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I think initially, but I think when I went, when I started at Oxford, it was just that curiosity of of what I would be like. And I think I'd, so I was at a girls' school in Ox in London and from 11 to 16, and then I went to Marlborough College. And I think those, there's no rowing at Marlborough, but it was, that was a kind of slightly difficult time in my life. It wasn't the happiest kind of period, I think, of a school. And um, there, so there's no rowing. I think I played lacrosse, which wasn't the main school sport. But, you know, I have a report from a lacrosse teacher which says she's not a first-class player. And then my, I had some good friends whose dad was this guy called Bruce Tullow, who's a famous runner in the 60s. I went on a cross-country run with them and they were like, she's not a natural cross-country runner. You know, so I came out from school sort of thinking that I wasn't school to see. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just really was, I hadn't found my sport yet. You know, and I, I think I would, you know, my brother and sister would always... You know, they're the kind of people that they'll go for a run. You know, they'll have that need to go for a run just just in themselves. They won't need to compete. I would say probably in my core, I'm quite a lazy person. Or maybe that's just being sort of young, the lazy younger sister. I don't know. But I need a competition. I need something in order to make me go out and train. It's that fear of feeling awful in the middle of a race that will, will make me go and row, um, I think. So then I... You know, I went to Oxford and then just discovered that rowing was my sport, and uh, and and I am very and I I mean I'm, I knew I was I've always been I'm highly competitive, but um, you know I hated losing games when I was younger and, and stuff like that. But I did not have that kind of connection with sport growing up and rowing are kind of the two sort of married together. Yeah, I think rowing is an interesting one because um, obviously when you compete against other people, you get that competitive thing, but also you're sort of constantly competing against mm-hmm. yourself. So even in training, there's all these kind of little wins that you can have and you can feel like you've, you've won over, whether you just won over physical performance on the row machine or like mentally kind of beating that voice. Um, I think it's also, you know, there's an AHL joke, isn't it, that rowers can't catch or throw. Yeah. If, yeah. You, were, if you were rubbish at all ball sports, you should try yeah. rowing, which is quite funny to say like, oh, he's, here are some people that aren't very coordinated. Now let's go and make them do something that's an incredibly coordinated movement. Um, but it's funny, it's just like you say, like, I think that's an interesting perspective. It's sort of, I was, you were competitive, but like just hadn't quite found that sport. And I would say like, that's like such a key thing, maybe for like parents or like as kids come up, I think the key is let them try everything. Yeah. Because you just never know what anyone's going to be into. And like you said, like having tried some other sports, it made you feel like you weren't sporty. I'd say my mum, when I was younger, was just, we just did it. She just yeah. put us into every football, rugby, everything. And then eventually we found the one that I was like, Mama, I want to do that again. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's like really important. And again, as well, I just think it's really funny having spoken to so many people now about how I think a lot of people would expect 
all those athletes that have done you know, boat race or Olympics or anything like that, oh, they must come from like a dynasty of rowing. You know, they must have an incredibly athletic family or they must have been like funneled into this. I think the more people we talk to, the more I realize like, no, it really just comes from within. Like, obviously there are some physiological limitations, but if you want to go and pursue it, and there's people from every every area, every background that have done that. So, Yeah, I mean, that, I'm sure you gone into this in different podcasts but that that sort of you know the idea that rowing is just a posh sport mm. and uh you know couldn't be further than the truth really if you go out you know i think probably the some cambridge boat race is not its greatest advert in that respect you know because it's so linked to those two universities but you know if you go to clubs up and down the country and any town on the river and you know find your rowing club you know and that, yeah. that's it you'll find Oh, I think like obviously being at Lee, Lee Rowing Club's a great example of that. It's been very yeah. much like a like a working working man's or working woman's kind of club. They kind of hold on to that badge. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it you know it's the club of the year. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I think everyone's proud now and then trying to you know bring in a more diverse group of rowers, and they have a program called I Belong um, to sort of really get people um, who live in Hackney to to come along and take part in the sport. Um, and I, you know, I think that, um, you know, that the, they, the club has suffered some prejudice in the past. And bizarrely that I, I think I had a couple of, um, women's Henleys in the nineties where I ended up on my altar boat ended up against the Lee rowing club and we lost both times. Um, and, uh, it, you know, but we did say things like, oh, the knee, they'll come and, you know, loosen your riggers in the middle of the night before you ready some stuff like that, you know? And, and so there is, you know, even, um, the juniors there, um, with some commentary, they were racing, um, some of my daughter's friends last summer and, uh, the commentary, I think it wasn't that school. So I think it might be, I can't remember some other regatta at Nottingham commentary said oh well they, they're from the lee a corner of north london not really known for its rowing prowess you know and it's like the lee was producing olympians 50 years ago you know and there's this brilliant woman called jill who coaches us who went to the olympics and then she was she was rowing in the 70s you know and so there, there is a bit you know mark pushway is the, the junior coach you know and these are people who kind of you know, it was, it was, they came and then they wanted to beat the, the rowers that came from the public schools in, you know, in the 70s and, and they did, you know, and uh, they did, and they, you know, there's a guy called Albert there and he's 82 and he just tells these amazing stories of, you know, when the river, there was, I think before they had the locks or whatever, whenever it was, there was no control, I think, over the, you know, the, the height of the river and sometimes sort of wreck the river would, um, be so high that the mice would come up and run around the the bridge and they would have mice in their pockets and that now we've got a nice swanking boathouse which was built with lottery money i think not health lottery but the national lottery and um but they'd have to wait you know if the river broke the broke the banks they'd have to wade in and get the boats and you, you know that was it was it was a proper well initially a proper working man's club and um you, you know i think that their history goes back a long way, so it is a really, really interesting club. I'm really proud to do part of it. We know um, uh, Langley Academy coach Nigel Ware, who's a who's um, previous GB Cox, who's uh, been at Lee a long time. He always proudly wears his Lee blazer at, yeah. at Henley. Um, another um, coach of mine, Chris Colleton, 
was an old Lee, Lee rower. He coached me at Leander for a long time. He was also briefly, I think, Olympic coach, 2004, coached the single mid. Um, yeah, I also, it's funny, um, I think the underdog mentality is so, such an amazing one to have. And sometimes even it's, you know, if the, if the, even if you, that other crew hasn't said anything, you know, oh yeah, they would have said this about us, you know, like it's all about kind of using whatever you've got to like make your best performance. Yeah. And again, having spoken to, you know, some Olympians and really successful rowers, I think it's an interesting thing that first time you're not the underdog because everyone starts an underdog and then that transition to like, okay, well now, but now I'm supposed to win. And then the sort of all different kind of pressure comes on. Um, but yeah, sometimes I think like some of those negative things can be just a case of people grabbing hold of whatever they can use to try and spur themselves on. But again, in rowing as well, you know, like some old habits die hard and old yeah. opinions of clubs and things. But um, but you said when you're in it, you go and actually have a go. Like the people in the middle of it are not don't really care. They just want to go rowing. But, yeah, so. which is a little bit like rowing uh, down on the ISIS, like where most most. I think 50% of students who come to Oxford or Cambridge will try out rowing. So I, I just wanted to like know what, from not wanting to be involved with rowing at all, what made you, what was it that uh, the ISIS had that kept you coming back and wanting like more? Yeah, I'd have to think back to, to, I think everyone likes to be good at something, don't they? So, so that's when I started in the, you know, my Christchurch regatta photo is about as crazy as everyone else's Christchurch regatta photo. I can believe that. <laughs> looking out of the boat and, you know, arms, legs everywhere, you know, and it's sort of really bonkers. But I didn't know that. I, I can't even remember how, how we did, and when we certainly didn't win the whole thing, but we might have won a race. Um, but I definitely knew that I was quite, I, you know, I was good at it, and in that, you know, I would get into. And we extra college women's was quite good at that particular moment in time, so that that there was a good boat of of women to row with. So it was quite an easy transition um, into the first boat, and. I mean, you know, it seems crazy now to think we learned to row with these massive wooden boats. I don't know, a massive wooden boat and, and massive wooden oars, you know. So I think, you know, when I started rowing again in 2019, you know, people would say say to me, when did you learn to row? You know, so I, apparently I do something to open my back too early or something like that, which probably no doubt comes from learning to row with a massive wooden boat with massive wooden oars. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that... I wasn't good at getting up early in the morning at that particular moment in time, but I I definitely went through it. And I was I was, I did Latin and ancient Greek, and I didn't know ancient Greek before I got to university. And um, so we actually had to do quite a lot of, sort of actual lessons more than other students. Perhaps so I had to go to an ancient Greek class every morning, and I just remember sitting at the back of the class going to sleep, and <laughs> because of the early morning hours. Yeah. But I think I just, you know, instantaneously just loved being on the river, loved being outside. Um, and the other day I came back and showed my daughter around Oxford so she could decide which university to apply for. She's decided to apply for Cambridge. Um, but just that walk um, up through Christchurch Meadow, mm. you know, and the wide path and Christchurch there. And, it, you know, actually for there's something that feels quite wild about it. It's quite, you know, you're, you're immediately sort of out of the city and in this incredibly beautiful place. And then just that, that row of boathouses. And, of course, we have the beautiful 
um, Oxford Boathouse on the other mm. side of the river, which burnt down. Um, you know, it's just, it's a really lovely place to roam. And I think I just, I got into it very quickly. And then, it, I mean, bumps racing, I, I, you know, I, don't, I mean, for me, bumps racing is still the most terrified that I have ever been at oh, the yeah. beginning of a race. Yeah. Because, and now I can't remember which one, whether it's Torpids or Summer Eights, where, what, you know, one one of them, the bunked and the bumpy drops out. And the other one, um, only one if you drop out. But you, you've got the potential to get kind of get tangled up. Mm. And so, and then the whole division row past you and you can drop down a whole division if you get something wrong. So, you know, you're in your boat, you hear the gun, the three minute starting pistol, and then, you know, the one minute and then, you know, the, the cops is there and the boatman's on the bank and they're holding this piece of rope. And then you just go and it, you know, you'll, it can be all over in 20 seconds, you know, yeah. it's such a bizarre form of racing, but and if I, you know, I really remember that sort of, and I think that was probably the excitement of that race. Yeah. I mean, I, I realize now, aged 52, um, that, that I'm addicted to the thrill of the race. Mm. Um, and I, I think back then I did find the training a bit boring. So now I love training and I love being out on the river. Then I did, I kind of, I mean, our coach, X had loved doing square blades. I mean, we just did square blades up and down, right? Lincoln River, you know. So I, I don't know why, you know, but it made, quite, made me have quite a good finish at the end of it. But, um, you know, it was a bit crazy. Um, I once did a charity row from Oxford to Henley, and we did the whole thing square blades. So wow. in order to protect our hands from feathering constantly, but I mean, we must have been, must have been quite good to be able to do the whole thing square blades but um yeah i think just that thrill of the thrill of bumps racing probably and then you know i think i'm after getting over that teenage grumpiness i i think i only ever found it inspiring to follow my sister's example you know and that so i guess so when did i start so 1990 um as my sister had done and my sister did the olympics in 1992 so she was in double skull and uh, came fifth in the final. And to go and watch that was obviously amazing. Um, and then so shortly after that, then then I that so that would have been the summer. And then I came back in in the autumn term and started training for Oxford mm-hmm. myself. So having that kind of seeing my sister achieve that amazing level of rowing, I think it is the best that a uh, women's boat had had done up until that point. Um, not in a, with a, where they had to qualify, not necessarily with a straight final. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a really amazing kind of example that I wanted to follow. I think it was, uh, I think Tim Foster was quoted as saying that um, still the most nervous he's ever been before a start was racing. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he was, and he had to start with, you know, he had to get Red Grave his, his fifth Olympic gold medal. So you can imagine there's some serious pressure on that. But yeah. There's yeah, so many the draws. Thing, yeah. The cannon thing is just, scare i can you can see the athletes just absolutely yeah it's like very foreboding to hear a cannon go off and say you've got a minute to go i think yeah i think the draw of oxford of rowing at the oxford colleges is is fascinating because you're part of like such long and winded history and like you said like some of the sunrises that you get to see in oxford and the fact that there are like all these other colleges everyone learning how to row is uh, it's almost like its own little separate division of rowing Mm -hmm. that you can feel like that's 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 the only like rowing world that you know and like the, there are quite a few of them like out there there's like obviously 
rowing on the river, rowing on lakes, there's rowing at Oxford colleges, there's rowing on the Atlantic and, and all these other things. But like, it is quite magical. Like I didn't, uh, like, I didn't even know too much about the system until I started coaching there with Tom. But like, you don't need that many, you don't need like a lot of reasons to like convince you that, uh, to, to continue rowing, I guess. But like, what was it that like made you want to start trialing outside of like seeing your sister's success? Um, I think that I had the advantage of having four years. So I did that my third year was, you know, it was kind of clear year. Yes, it was hard work, but I, you know, I knew that I'd be able to kind of give it a really good crack. Um, that there wasn't much kind of to hold me back in that way. You know, I also, I think that, um, at that point, so the Exeter College boat had been really good. Um, and then we went through a year where I think some of the girls had been sort of older years than me. And, and then they graduated and then the new cohort of rowers mm-hmm. um, were just not as strong. And, and in fact, sort of that, I'll, you know, once I'd done the first um, two terms of blue boat training, I went and, and tried to row with them in the summer term. And I couldn't, the boat, the boat, I kept turning the boat, the, the um, stroke side. So I kept, you know, the, I was too strong to row in the boat. And so that was one of the, I think one of the keen drivers is that if I'd just stayed running for exercise, I really, yeah. you know, I, I really would have had a not good year in that third year. And so then, you know, it was a sort of natural step to take mm-hmm. that kind of next level um, and, try and, and try and do it for the boat race. I guess it's easier to also like take that step from, uh, you know, being a blue boat rower or, or being an Oxford blue to then like, go out into the the further like the deeper rowing world as well and like start like competing nationally and like um take that sort of the uh, side of the side of the road which is what you did then going into tireless colors yeah yeah i mean the and for my sister it kind of happened um at the same time because the you know maybe the women's rowing world was sort of a bit in the state of flux at that time and all that they were definitely kind of actively recruiting from the Oxford and Cambridge boats. And so I think she was doing, you know, doing Team GB while she was still at Oxford, um, which could be, you know, fairly unusual. This, this is what Ma- Matthew Pinson has done. That. I think I'd like a very similar time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, so I mean, my sister was late 80s and then Matt Pinson was 92, 93, I think, when, um, yeah, so I think he must have done. Around the time you were at Oxford. Yeah, when I was at Oxford. So, um, well, yeah, 93, I think the, I think Oxford's, did the Olympics came back and then the did the great race in 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 that it was we were in one of those phases that we're in at the moment where Cambridge were very dominant and uh, Oxford were not so dominant. Can't remember the exact results. Yeah, we spoke about that as well. It's uh, that it's interesting. It sort of goes on a run sometimes. Yeah, um, especially because it attracts so many athletes from from other places quite often. If you're coming in from America, it's just saying, well, who's winning? Yeah. You know, so it can be like not much to, between the courses and stuff. So they just kind of go with who's winning. But then that makes it sort of even sweeter when it gets overturned, doesn't it? Yeah. I know. And it will get, it will get overturned. And you, it's been really, um, it's been really fun to go back. And so this year, well, last year, we did the first ever women's veterans boat race um, on the Tideway. And so, of course, that was a massive thing um, for anyone of my generation because we weren't allowed to row on Tideway. And when when we were at Oxford, so that year, uh, 1993, 1994, 
you know, we it was a bit of a kind of period of uh, things were starting to change. I sort of dug out these old cuts the other day and um, I think, you know, we have a WhatsApp group with, you know, alumni and, and um, someone sent this clip from when they were rowing in the late 80s and, you know, the men had had a boat, but they, they didn't give it to the women. They had to, the women had to go out and raise the money in order to buy the boat off the men. And and then when I was there, it was Beefy to Gin, obviously, was the big sponsor. And I think in 94 was the first year that Beefy to Gin gave uh, the women some money. And I think we ran, me and my friend kind of ran the press campaign to try and get as much press coverage as possible for the women's boat race. And I found some cut. And I think they gave us it was either 10 or 20K, but they insisted that it all had to be spent on kit for some reason. So not on equipment. I don't know why. So everything just went on branded, briefly to June kit. And um, I think the men at that time, um, and I won't check these figures, but maybe 3 million or something like that. I mean, it was just this kind of drop in the ocean. And we did, we all trained at Ifley Gym. Um, and we were actually lucky at that particular period of time, perhaps, because we had a minibus that we had inherited from the men that was a little bit battered, but it did, you know, we didn't have our own base. So unlike uh, the women at the moment, and obviously now, you know, we, we just recently has been the, the, you know, all the clubs come together and it's now AUBC. Um, but so we had to, we sort of rode all over the place. We rode at Godstow, we rode at Radley, we rode at Wallingford, at Carmel College, we voted from... Um, rode at Henley, we rode at Ely because our boatman and our um, coach in the first year was a boatman at King's Ely, so we had to be <laughs> yeah. the uh, not, I won't describe it as the pleasure, the, the, the misery of rowing at Ely, um, <laughs> which I, I will say is the most miserable place that I've ever rode. And um, yeah, it's not. It's um, Carmel College is the one I showed you on the other side of the bank. I want it in the, the Jewish college. Yeah, it's yeah shut yeah, down now. Right. But the boathouse, I think, is like pretty crazy, isn't it? It's like a yeah, it's like a pretty. I think it's like a listed building now. Oh, that's um, that's interesting because they they Kabifita came along and took some pictures of us outside, and it is a kind of interesting sort of sixties mm. building. I think you know, it's like concrete, it's yeah. kind of concrete prefab stuff, but like strange. Yeah, it looks almost like a bit of like a. Um, sort of religious feel to it almost like the altar where the is go to to pray or whatever but uh yeah no that's that's funny but um again it's, like it's it's like you you kind of just got to use all those things and take take that badge of well we're not getting as much and we haven't got so much money but we yeah. gotta do more with it and all those different things and still at the time as well you know like again i'm talking with tim 92 that was sort of the first Olympics when the new larger cleaver blades had come in fiberglass was only just kind of coming in there was loads of stuff kind of going on at that time on both sides but yeah that's it's it's definitely nice to see in the modern day that they're, they're, they're sort of ponding and they're interested a lot more even than it was yeah and also like right now the teams train at wallingford and still train at ifley gym but like if you got to train at radley and henley and you got so you got also like a really like full experience of like what it's like to be an oxford blue too yeah we did we did you know and it was Actually, I mean, I loved, you know, rowing in all of those places. And and what I one of the things I like about Monsters rowing at the moment is, you, you know, I sort of it's a sort of weird form of sightseeing. I like rowing and racing on different rivers or in different places, you know. So it was really fun. I mean, for me, obviously, the favorite place is Henley. I loved rowing at Henley. I loved training at Henley. Um, but yeah, we, 
I think you're right. I mean, we did we did sort of take those kind of. It made us determined, and and I remember we had you know it was a great moment for our for everyone you know all ex UWBC rowers when the first race happened on the Tideway. Did, did Zoe cox it? Zoe to Toledo? Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. Too many, too many names. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> no, too many generations. They did a big. Um, they had a big event, so they got all of the. They tried to get as many old blues as possible to come along, um, and then watch. And it was some really strange kind of feeling of kind of you, you, you know, you're celebratory, but also kind of slightly jealous that, that they were kind of, they were getting to experience this thing that we really haven't been allowed to experience. And it, it, and then, you know, in the end, in the mid nineties, the, uh, I think Oxford, maybe we were a little bit keener that the, the setup, we, everyone was kind of keen on, on the women going to the tideway. And at that point, because Cambridge were kind of in the ascendancy and they were doing well at Henley and the Henley boat race day kind of perhaps were more for staying at Henley. Um, but, you know, the old arguments that were sort of chapter as were, you know, there wasn't enough time to have a women's boat race or that the, 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 the training would be different. And I know there is still, you know, there was that the difficulty with the, the lightweights perhaps. And, you know, Henley boat races was a lovely day when you know, there were lots of races. And it was a really successful day. I got really, I was really angry actually. Um, at the, <laughs> so when when the women's race switched, I pitched an article to a, a newspaper, which I won't mention. Um, but you know, I said, you know, with my perspective, having roamed at Henley, and then I'd like to go and interview the women and you know find out what the experience was, what it is like for them rowing on the tideway. And um, I think the newspaper possibly picked up the idea but sent a male football journalist along instead and um and you know in his copy he wrote that the Henley boat races used to be watched by a couple of swans and and that was it you know and and that that it really annoyed me because it was it was a successful day and there were lots of people in the bank you know used to be you know it was I have great memories of that and we worked really hard to to publicize it and get the women's boat race on the map you know, and you know, successive generations of women sort of really, really tried to do that. But the reality is, it wasn't until it got to the tide wave where people kind of went, "Oh, there's a women's boat race," you know, and um, and that, and it is kind of transformative. And you know, I think maybe you still have a couple of negative voices about it, but I absolutely 100% think that the addition of the women um, to that day has just made it uh, a brilliant day. It's you know, and now, so now the men's vets race has been going for like, I think since the mid nineties. Um, and that always usually takes place like the day before, maybe the week before kind of depending now. So we've had the second, we had the second women's, um, veterans race this year. And it was a really, it was a lovely day, but it, you know, it was like, it was a poignant day, um, as well, because, um, the chairman of the boat races had, uh, died in in a race at, at Henley, um, but I think that um, you know there was that kind of real feeling sort of coming together, and uh, and the feeling that 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 it's become this sort of weekend of racing, um, you know, and we we might all be a bit sort of old and wrinkly, and we're not rowing as far, so you know the men's and the women's bets race from um, Putney to just after Hammersmith Bridge. Um, 
So we did, I think it's about half the course, something like that, which has not been, that's not, that was set back in the 90s because they didn't want the men's vets to cast a shadow over the boat race proper um, to make it look like, you know, that you, you've got to kind of protect the, the, the full race. So yeah. that's why we only go up to just up to Hammersmith Bridge. But I have to say, I think that was probably far enough. Um, yeah, so, I would have thought so. <laughs> we won, we, and so last year we won the first women's race. Um, so, and that was amazing last year. It was fantastic to go and, and race against Cambridge and actually win for the first time. I did it when I was wearing at Tideway Scullers when we won the gold medal for at the Nat Champs. Um, we did beat Cambridge in that race, but it wasn't quite the same because it was in Tideway Scullers colours. Um, but yeah, to do it as, as Oxford um, and quite easily in the first year, it was a great feeling. And then I didn't, that was three and a half K, I think it is. And I didn't, you know, didn't feel much pain, just felt the joy of the win. And then this year, um, they had Kath Bishop, Sarah Winkless, um, and a few other superstars on board. And, uh, we didn't, we had my sister, we had my sister and Alice Topley, who are both, um, Olympians um, and so our, our game plan was to just crack it off the start as, uh, and then just try and unnerve them which we did and we did we did get up off the start and then they just powered through us and uh, yeah the second half of that race was pretty painful I did I did think oh I'm 51 what the hell am I doing stroking this boat you know <laughs> I did um, in a massive headwind would it in 2009 we put um and like a GB under 23 development crew together to race. Um, I don't even think it was the blue, but maybe it was half blue, half um, goldie, Cambridge. Um, and we had an all right start, but by the time we got sort of to to Barn Elms, we were starting to fall. And then coming through uh, Harrods, I just, I just remember the feeling of like, this is so bleak. Like, like imagine, because we weren't even doing the whole course. I think we did half and we'd half and half. Just thinking, like, imagine sort of coming through Hammersmith down, and your entire year is is just going to be like kind of hack. Yeah, it really kind of put me off. I know. I mean, it. it's such a. I, I mean, that stretch is quite bleak. But I mean, you know, if you're down at that point when you're coming out yeah. of Hammersmith Bridge, and then just yeah, I mean, there's nothing else, isn't there? Uh, there's no like, let's a, hold on to second place. It's, yeah, uh, it's brutal. You have to fight that voice in your head for so long. Yeah. That's the half the draw, isn't it? Because it's win or nothing. I think that's what kind of yeah. makes it more more exciting. Yeah, I think for the the putting the women on the um, tideway, like the first kind of like the perspective or, or whatever that chatter of oh, but it's not as good and and just think, but a court like you have to make the move first. You know, yeah. you're not going to be able to attract. You know, like you said, the men's race attracts Olympians from all over the world. Like you're going to have to put it on the tideway first, and it wasn't long before it started attracting some some Olympians like American and uh, New Zealand um, and that all, yeah, now you can see some real star studies. So I think that's, that's already a, always for me like a frustrating thing of like, if you want things to improve, you're going to have to, you're going to have to like make a move first, let it do something and then, and then that'll follow. Yeah. And I'm really glad that's changed. Like having heard about like how, how it was and like, you know, you had having to like fight for funding or even like to use boats and like being told like what you can and cannot spend on to then like actually seeing that like, you know, everybody now races on the tideway. I think that just, like you said, makes the whole event just so much richer and like it's just a better like for spectators, but also like for the tradition of it. But um, yeah, that uh, journalist uh, talking about and the couple of swans watching the Henry boat races 
also boil my blood. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what? So there's so much more to it, and I like again, like part of what we do this in the compass uh, in the in this podcast and having long formats to like really get into kind of the background and the guts of it. And there's so many interesting things. And like from my perspective, you know, when you read some article and it, it just starts with, oh, and you know, the boat race athletes have to get up at five o'clock and eat ten thousand calories, and you just think, oh, how lazy. Like, yeah. That's been talked about so many times. And there's so much more to it and like fascinating stuff. It's quite funny when they kind of, I think, it, uh, is it sisters or twins? I think two sets of twins. I think, I think there's a set of twins, but there's also sisters, one in each this year. Oh, really? So you know, yeah, the media's going to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. well, <laughs> we do like our easy lines. In fact, I mean, back in 93, 94, I think that was, because we, we, you know, there's another girl in the boat that I rode with from Blue Sea and her sister had been a blue. So we just went through that. We had following in our sister's footsteps. And yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, it's the same with kind of the Atlantic rowing. Actually, you know, it's the same. Well, I'm I'm not going to be with my family at Christmas, kind of thing. I mean, you do. <laughs> yeah, they're easy lines to pick mm. up. But you're right. It's it's you know, it's there's much more, many more interesting things to talk about. And even like the same when when it comes to like choosing guests, like we could possibly try and have Olympians on every week. But like eventually, those stories of like you know going to the Olympics, like if you hear it for the 40th time in a row, is going to get boring. And like there's just so much to rowing. There is so much history that like is possibly like unexplored because well, most rowers just you know train with their blinders on. Come up like they do loads of training, 12, 16 times a week sometimes, and like there's not much time to. To even like talk to others who have been involved in the sport and like seen how it's like changed throughout the years, etc. So, no, it's um, I think it's it's really valuable to like also understand the context of like how things are changing and like to to see like possibly like what other steps we can do to make the sport change for the better in the future and like even be more inclusive but also better for the spectators, etc. And like just yeah. to really follow on with the tradition of it, yeah. So afterwards, you said you went to Tybo Scholars. Did you have any thoughts of, of trying to take your rowing to, to the national level or more busy in sort of pursuing the career? I did. I, I did. I, I, I mean, I always thought, I sort of said to myself that you, you need to kind of have three things really to if you're going to be an Olympian. So you need to have, you know, the, the talent, um, and the determination and the physiology. And um, I think that's probably maybe I'm being slightly sort of harsh on myself, um, that at that time, you know, however old I was, like 21, 22, um, I think I probably did have the talent, um, perhaps more so in a sculling boat than than rowing. Um, but... Um, did I have the determination at that point? Not sure. I quite had the same level of determination that I have now. I always quite fond of partying as well. And oh, you have to. <laughs> yeah. So and and in terms of physiology, this is quite an interesting one because um, I, you know, the nutrition, the advice, everything you get now is is totally different. Um, I would still say I probably didn't have sort of physiologically probably wasn't as natural an athlete as my sister. And I remember my sister going to do sort of tests, you know, sort of early days of sort of adopting a more scientific approach to it. Her tests were so incredible that they actually refused to believe them. And, you know, wow. her sort of lung capacity, everything. Whereas I've sort of, you know, I spent kind of 30 years trying to persuade people that my peak flow was really a bit crap and perhaps I should... 
perhaps I was mildly asthmatic, you know, and it's only actually fairly recently that I've managed to, you know, get myself a brown inhaler and it's made a massive difference, you know. So, but at the same time, you know, so now I think I am, you know, I'm tall, I'm strong, perhaps I was subduing myself a bit down on, on that aspect of things, you know, and then the other thing is the nutrition. So, I mean, I basically feel like I did the boat race on toast. You know, <laughs> and, you know that, that was it. I mean, I remember we had one piece of nutritional advice, which was eat bread and honey straight after training. Um, oh, that's so, because that's also, that's yeah, my school rowing coach was super old school. And uh, you'd see kids like, oh, you need to have this this protein or this or that. No, nope. jam, jam sandwiches or honey sandwiches was what we were told. Yeah, I mean the, the protein. Honestly, we and weirdly with Exeter, we did we did have a we did manage to get a kind of rowers dinner, and and we did have steak, but at the time in in the nineties, that was considered really retro. That was considered sort of very nineteen seventies kind of all protein. You know, no one has protein. You know, you've got to have carbs. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you just and I remember my sister used to share a house with Ben Hunt Davis in Oxford, and I remember going around, you know, and he just was eating this entire packet of Mother's Pride bread. You know. <laughs> just one piece at a time, yeah. You know, and that was it. We just ate. And I mean, we'd go to Ely. I remember for some reason, particularly Ely, we'd go to the Tesco's afterwards and we'd come back and we'd have scones and, you know, we'd get every single piece of white carbohydrate that we possibly could off the shelf, but no protein. And I look at my kids and they're just sort of, you know, stuffing themselves with protein. But yeah, so that year, anyway, to get back to your question, um... I so we went for Tideway Scholars and I think we did um so they were they did have at that particular time kind of development weekends at Nottingham. Mm-hmm. So we go up for development weekend, but uh, I do remember just one weekend going up and we did the first day fine and then the next day was kind of one of those horrific Nottingham mornings and it was so windy, it was so horrible and no one could row and so they may just run round for the the lake twice um and then after that we just like right we just we put on our blue oxford puffers and said right we're going home and um you know that was that was it for international trialing for me i i kind of i was like right i'm not you know not doing it just focused on tideway um got the gold medal at the nat champs got the gold medal at uh, rowing for england um and then went to seville to teach English so that was that was the the sort of break for me I think I had a real urge to go and live abroad mm. so I wasn't at that particular moment in time maybe wasn't especially career driven mm. but I I had a real desire to to live in a different country so went to Seville um did taught English for a year and then at the beginning of the second year um I did actually think oh maybe I'd quite like to start rowing in Seville went down to the club tried to get in and went for a couple of outings, but there were really only two women rowing and they were in a double and they're just, they weren't very welcoming. It's a bit geeky. Yeah, it was a bit, and also, you know, the fact was, because of the heat mainly, um, that they still tr- trained at six o'clock in the morning, mm. but we weren't going out for drinks until 11 o'clock in the evening. We'd get home at four o'clock in the morning. I just thought, this is not going to be compatible with <laughs> life in Seville, yeah. you know, and I might, if I want to be rowing and getting up at six o'clock in the morning, might as well be doing it in in England. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, two years in Seville, came back, and then then I just kind of got on with my career and and didn't row, 
started partying and uh and then I think I suppose mid thirties I had kids and then um I think the I was working at New Magazine and um we had an art director who um he had a drink problem and he'd nearly lost his life. He'd got stepped out in the middle of the road and been hit by a car and and um his best friend had died and you know he, so he was kind of in trouble and he he sort of then um kind of you know managed to get off the booze and started running marathons and and this was the sort of you know one of those kind of moments of inspiration you know so so I was kind of inspired by him my uh mom had died of breast cancer so then I think my son was born in 2009 and then in March 2009 um, and then I did my first walking marathon in 2010. So I did the moonwalk. So I started power walking. And and then I did, then a couple of years later, I got the um, a new magazine group together, including the art director. And we did the moonwalk again. Um, and then I sort of, you know, got, you know, started to get that kind of competitive feel back. And the moonwalk is actually an amazing event because it's a marathon. It's overnight. You do it in a sparky bra and, you know, but it's quite, can be quite bleak because... How long did it take? Well, I mean, it, it took me, I think the first time I did it was six and a half hours. Um, but the roads aren't closed. So you do have to kind of, you have to wait at traffic lights and stuff like that. And then the second time, I think maybe I got it down to about six hours. But then, obviously, being highly competitive, I'm like, I want a time, <laughs> you know. So then, uh, then I did the London Marathon, um, power walking again. But so, I never quite got to the kind of realms of speed walking. But it sort of was power walk mm-hmm. slash speed walk. Um, and I hate running, which is just <laughs> I ask that question: Why, why, why didn't I run the marathons? Because uh, I just really, I really just don't like running. And power walking for me actually felt a bit more akin to the rowing stroke, perhaps in the same way that cross-country skiing mm. might feel more suited to rowing. You know, it's a sort of similar movement rather than running. So I kind of, you know, it's like a power walking is like a steady state dancing, really. Yeah. And um, you get into a rhythm. Yeah, you really get into a nice rhythm. And I mean, you know, if you look at my times from the marathons, it's it's like you know, it's just the same. I'm exactly the same pace for like you know every hour, every kilometer. Um, so I, I started doing marathons, and then I I did the London. I've done London lots of times. So I've done Paris. I've done Edinburgh. Um, and then that was all through when I was at New Magazine. So. Uh, to the end of my time at New, so the last five years, I was editor, editor-in-chief. You know, it's really busy. It's a weekly magazine. You've got, you know, I had 40 people. I was managing 40 people. Wow. You know, I had young kids. Um, and I think I used the the walking training as a, you know, just a means just to be on my own and just to, you know, get that time to myself. But when I got made redundant in 2018, um, then that, that, kind of the opposite thing happened I didn't want to be out on on the road on my own for so much you know so much because I was you know in my office uh, being a freelance journalist on my own and I really missed being part of a team sport so I got back into rowing in a, a weird way I actually had a, a press trip to Lake Annecy to take part in a paddle boarding competition but sort of four people on the pub they did these red paddleboard company and um 
dragon paddle boarding, they called it, but they did these, created these massive paddle boards, had four people on board. So they just mixed up teams, you know, I didn't know who I was going to be there until I got there. And, um, and, and we just did this racing and, and it was crazy. It was great, you know, falling in the water and it was really warm. And, and it just, I just thought, wow, I just remembered what it was like, that feeling of racing on the water. And, uh, and funnily enough, that one of the women doing the other boats was called Deborah Searle who is an Atlantic rower and very, so she was very famous in the mid Northeast for doing the Atlantic row. And she set off with her husband and um, within a few days he had to be rescued because he developed a real fear of the ocean. And, uh, and she went on, carried on, on, on her own wow. in the boat. I think, I mean, I think it took her over a hundred days, which is completely bonkers. And there's a picture of her with a kind of cooking pot, like a, you know, I mean, it comes slightly really different to how it is these days. Um, and that that was really my first kind of proper kind of introduction to ocean rowing. And, you know, I remember asking her about, you know, the sleep regime, like you sleep for two hours and then you and then you row for two hours. You know, what happens to the boat while you're asleep on your own? You know, still freaks me out, even though I've done it, you know, like, oh, yeah, how could you possibly do this thing on your own? Um but yeah, so then I I just enjoyed that feeling of being on the water so much that then I I no we thought my husband's French. We've got a house in France. It's next to a lake called Lac de Vouglon, where the French national team train quite a lot. Oh, nice! Quite inspiring. It's lovely, and then um, it's got a small rowing club attached, and you know we got hold of the um, the the head of the club, and he put me out in a single, and that was the first time I'd been in a rowing boat for about. 23 years or something 22 years and the outing was fine but when I when I came back in I, I basically couldn't get out of the boat oh. I couldn't I just rolled onto the pontoon um yeah and that I mean you know getting in and out of the boat is a bit of a challenge when you get older we joke a lot about and no, no one ever really gets away from rowing. You, no. you think you've retired, but no one no one gets out. So that, when anyone thinks they're going to finish rowing, they just, uh, you know, I'll see you in a few years. But um, going back to it, I think um, that feeling is mesmerizing, isn't it? Like being on the water, like once once you feel it again, you just, just can't get it out of your system. You just have to go back rowing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's like, again, like we were sort of saying before about, you know, not just talking to Olympians, because I think... Hard, everyone who gets the top works hard, but also everyone has a bit of luck. And there's a certain position, you know, like you said, when you went and trialed for, for GB, I think it's funny. I can't remember where this is just, um, the thing they used to say about Nottingham is that the, where the lake is built, they uh, previously tried to uh, get planning permission for an airport and they said, no, because it's too windy. Have you heard that one? Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> yeah. Have you not heard that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So build a rowing lake there. But uh, yeah, if you had like, uh, you know, some sunny weekends and maybe, you know, the right coach or the right people around you, definitely not having the right squad, having some good friends, like sometimes those little things that, that, that can like push you on a different path. And again, like, I'm doing this like it's interesting to hear sometimes they're small uh the one we we did with um uh just recently with um imogen uh who told us that she signed up for like a taster session wasn't going to go felt bad that she was going to go so sort of walked out to front of their college and just at the end of the road saw saw the group going down for the session so she just went along and caught up and then she's now a double world and european champion she's a world record holder and you're just like, wow, those little things yeah, that could have make or break. Doors moment, um, I also got a lot of respect for people who, because like, especially in these days, like taking it up to that national level is is ridiculous. It's very hard to do rowing half-assed, like especially if you've taken it seriously. So for you having done a blue boat 
to then be like, oh, well, I haven't got enough time to do it properly, but I'll do a session or two. There's not a lot of involved enjoyment in that. Yeah. So I definitely still have like, I have a lot of respect for people who are like, found the level that they wanted to go on one that chance road at home you know home countries and it's like that's that's good for me um because i think a lot of people maybe try and push a little bit too far and then leave the sport kind of jaded and unhappy or or injured or having done that really hard bit so you know i also think there's something to be said for like yeah when you when you've had enough or when you're not enjoying it anymore to go and do something else yeah i mean the injuries thing is is really interesting because i was i did i struggled when I was at Oxford, um, I think, I mean, really sort of, you know, on rowing on an erg sort of really early on and slipped a disc or had a bulging disc. Um, and it took quite a long time to, so that was when I was at Exeter actually, before I'd, um, before I was rowing in a blue boat. Wow. And then, um, so we're doing the blue boat training and then, you know, started to get problems, went to see Steve Redgrave's wife and... Oh, she was my doctor as well. Was she? Yeah, no, well, I was in the team, yeah. Yeah, and she's, she was great, you know, and she kind of sorted me out, but I had to take two weeks out. And then when I came back, that's when I was dropped from the blue boat in the first year, because I didn't, I just, even that, losing that, those two weeks, just kind of, you know, I still was kind of playing catch up slightly. Um, but, you know, I think that, Again, that, that we didn't have the same focus on core strength no, yeah. that you have that you have now. So you know, we did lots of weights. Yes, we did kind of sit ups and stuff. But you know, I mean, I'd say now my core is now the strongest it's ever been. You know, and I, I you know, I was. I remember before I set off across the Atlantic, a friend of mine said, "You know, you're actually going to be all right because she, you know, I rode her. She was a lightweight at Oxford, you know, and she just remembers me being really injured all the time, you know, and." I think that was one thing. I was I was quite prone to injury, and but again, that comes back to that understanding of that core strength, the you know the the, the balance of training, which you, you know, and the nutrition, and all of which has kind of improved massively. And you know that that I mean, we, we you know you said it was a kind of exciting time. I mean, it was. You know, I went from wooden blades to cleavers in the space of three years. You know, yeah. but. All of that does a kind of a lot of different things to your body, I think. So oh, massively, you know. So that that was, you know, that that is a that was kind of part. I think that was one of the reasons why, you know, I kind of thought, well, I, I could do this, but I'm just going to end up injured, you know. And it was just, I think, my sister had not had lottery funding, mm-hmm. and it was probably just at the time also when lottery funding was coming in. Um, but there is still that is that you know my sister managed to kind of do she had a part time job um, she founded Rock the Boat which is the t shirt company oh yeah you know so she I mean I would go to Henley and kind of sell t shirts out of the bag and stuff like that you know so that that was all to kind of make money for for their Olympic dream because yeah. you know because there was no funding but I think now you know that if you if you're even kind of as you got to the mid nineties, so you know people like Kath Bishop, you know that it's you're really putting your career on hold mm. for a while in which to do it, and that is a big decision, and it's it's not for everybody. Yeah, if you're going to do it properly, it's not just it's your it's your entire life. Yeah. I would have said like when I was training full time at Leander and at the team as well, you just feel like this this thirty people in this room just with life on pause because there's not time to sort of do anything. Like that. It's like a joke sometimes. I think for that sort of seven eight year period when i really took it really seriously i don't think i watched the news i didn't read a newspaper i didn't download a new song i didn't read a new book uh, you just was absolutely focused and i sort of remember kind of finishing that and being like oh i can like do other things now and i think again like well yeah once you 
taking it really seriously, it's difficult to step back a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, you obviously, when you said you got kind of back into it slowly yeah. in, uh, in, in France. Yeah, so that was, um, so it was, I think, uh, 20, must have been 2018, something like that. So it, I went to the single skull and then went to the Lee at the beginning. So a couple of months later, it started rowing at the Lee. And they, the, the Lee kind of doesn't have, um, it had sort of club masters, but maybe not sort of elite masters level. Um, so we trained with, there were a couple of us, two or three scholars trained with the performance women. That was going to be quite hard. Um, so going straight back into it, doing double outings on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. Already. Still quite young kids. And um, so within about a few weeks, I'd, I'd done my knee in. And, um, you know, I started to get, again, started to get injury problem, problems. I got tenosynovitis in my wrist. And but then the pandemic, that was, pandemic happened. So I hadn't done any, you know, just kind of getting back into it. Hadn't done any racing yet. Um, and then March 2020, like everything just kind of shut down. Um, and then it was really sort of bitty, really, from there. Um, and it's kind of hard to look back and remember now, isn't it? Kind of exactly what happened. But uh, I think in that summer, I managed to go, went out to France, did a bit more sculling there, kind of came back, I think. And sort of winter 2020 was a little bit more open. But then perhaps again that um, from January to March 2021, everything was closed. Um, and then I remember so at the end of March 2021, starting again, getting out in single um, and going out with friends and, and starting to kind of race each other along with me and it being quite empty. Uh, and then we decided, she's requested it, we decided to do a double together. And then um, that's when I think started to compete for the first time. So we did Brit Masters and Henry Masters, um, both slightly chaotic in different ways. Uh, but at that time, so I had started, so my friend Joe, so when I got dropped from the Blue Boats in 1993, so with three weeks to go, um, so was my friend Joe. So she rode in the Blue Boat the year before. She was the vice president. Um, we did some seat racing at Emi, I think, and um, she remembers better than me, but she thinks we won our seat racing, but we're dropped anyway. Um, which obviously can happen in the world of rowing. Um, but we dropped into Osiris and then five of us in Osiris became sort of bosom buddies and we, you know, we've been friends now, um, for 30 years. And so then she, she had briefly mentioned to me in December, 2020 that, you know, she was planning to do the Atlantic row, um, and that someone had dropped out, but, you know, before I could even think about whether I wanted to do it, she was like, oh no, we've got someone else, it's fine. So, you know, it hadn't even kind of, you know, really sort of, you know, I mentioned it to my kids and they were like, no, you can't do that. Um, and then I, I just helped the crew out, they called the mothership. Um, and I started to help them out a little bit with their media and I did an interview with them for the Telegraph, um, just talking about all the difficult reasons for putting the boat together, rowing across the Atlantic. So it was one of the women's um, husbands who'd done it two years before um, or a year before at that point, I think. And then she'd watched him come in in Antigua and thought, right, I want to do it, doing the female boat. Um, and in fact, if, if Paula had stayed in the boat, they would have been the oldest female for to have to have tackled it. Um, I was slightly younger than Paula, so 
we we were the, we were um, the oldest crew is was older than us by about four months or something. Oh. A little bit annoying, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway. So there, we just this article just literally come out and Telegraph was about to come out and Telegraph when my friend called me and said um, Paul has dropped out. Um, would you like to row across the Atlantic with us instead? Um, and I remember I was sitting in the garden with my husband's room we about having a glass of Chardonnay or something, and and my husband said you've got to do it because you will regret it for the rest of your life if you don't do it. And I was a little bit more, I, I didn't say yes immediately. I mean, for a weird reason, just entirely because on our honeymoon, when we got married after the kids were born, we came back in a boat from Sark. We went to Sark, came back in the worst storm ever. And um, and I got really seasick. And, uh, and so I said to them, look, uh, I'll come and do a trial weekend on the boat. And I was just a bit worried because I was so seasick on this particular trip. You know, anyway, got on the boat and um, and just fell in love a bit. And, and that was it. And I said yes after the weekend. And luckily we all gelled really well. So, um, How long was that before leaving? That How much time was, did you serve? So that was about seven months before leaving. Okay. So I was incredibly lucky in some ways because, you know, if, you, if you've if you chatted to Ocean Rose before and you, you're um, working with us, it's never too late. Yeah. But yeah. So you'll know that, like, some people have it. It's a dream that, like, two, three years, you know, now I think, like, the waiting list for what, what was the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, but I think the Talisker and then all the sponsors. No, I think it's still Talisker. Is it still Talisker? Uh, yeah, yeah so, they've got that on the Never Too Late boat. Oh, have they? Yeah. Oh, great. Well, that's good. Um but they've slightly rebranded it the world's oh. toughest row, I think. Okay. Some debate. <laughs> what is the world's toughest row exactly? It's definitely the longest. Yeah. The world's longest row, yeah. Three thousand miles. Yeah. So it's um yeah. So that that I had seven months, but and the training wise, obviously I'd already been training. I'd started to race. Um training was kind of the least of my worries, really. Um, so you've got to do all sorts of courses, which you'll, mm. your crew will be doing. So navigation, short radio, life-saving at sea, all these various different things. Um, and they, they, they can be, the tasks are very accommodating or Atlantic campaigns, people that run it, very um, accommodating. So they kind of push the deadline as much as possible for me to be able to join. And you have to spend 120 hours on the ocean rowing boats um, going around that sleeping on the boat does count apparently to those 120 hours but yeah. that i mean it can be you know with everyone busy lives and anything going on it is it's it's hard to notch up those hours and when i joined you know that means that the girls then had to they had to start at zero again and, and yeah. get up to 120 again you know so we had to you know have quite long weekends and and stuff getting ready before you you go um but we managed all that. Actually, we had some really beautiful, amazing rows. Our, our long road around the Solent. So our boat was in Gosport, and which is quite tricky. It's quite challenging. Um, and a lot of people row in Burnham. So um, Burnham on Sea is kind of the ocean rowing capital of the universe. Um, but that that's quite. I hesitate to say easy because it can be quite challenging as well and very windy. Um, but you don't have quite the same kind of tidal and issues and it's just a really busy shipping lane around Gosport mm. and getting out around Southampton. But actually I found that stood us in really good stead. Um, you know, was it was really challenging and um one well, probably even better for if you wanted to tackle the row around Great Britain. 
Um, but some of those weekends were lovely. I mean, we just had the most amazing weather, like beautiful sunshine. I've got photos of us with just the water is utterly, utterly flat. Um, and we saw seals and, you know, that, that was kind of as much part of it as, as anything else, you know, but uh, one of the big things they say about the, the ocean row is that, um, you know, half the battle is getting onto the start line. Which I, I think any rower is probably familiar with, it, you know, in any any competition, you know, you've always got that kind of fear of injury um, or some kind of disaster kind of striking before you you get onto the start line. But um, we had a lot of dramas. In fact, we probably had, I would say that we probably had more drama getting onto the start line than we actually did in the race itself. Yeah. Um, which I haven't written a book, but if you know, if I wanted to write a book, it's probably slightly annoying because you probably, you know, probably want a bit more drama. That actually happened on the horse <laughs> as well. But I mean, you know, ridiculous. So I, I had a, I went, I did summer skiing. Probably not a great idea. Hurt my knee. Had an MRI scan. Suddenly got a phone call from GP saying, you know, you might have bone cancer. There's this weird patch on your bone. And then, so I was sort of thrown into this sort of two-week kind of, you know, and this was about six weeks before we were about to leave. And I just had the MRI as a kind of, you know, golden braces. Is there anything wrong with my knee before I go? And um, and it was really bonkers. And, and they didn't, eventually, I, I sort of, I had to, I went, was on this sort of fast tracks, get your appointment within two weeks. And there's only one hospital that really deals with this, this Stanmore Hospital, World Orthopedic Hospital in Stanmore. While I was waiting for the appointment, I saw a private specialist. He was a little bit kind of bemused to begin with, and he kind of didn't really know what this patch was. And eventually, he spoke to a radiologist at Stanmore as well, and, and they decided that it's a really bizarre kind of niche thing. But it's, it was a patch of bone marrow that had changed colour. So I thought oh, the bone marrow is yellow when you're a kid and turns red, or vice versa. But if you put your body under extreme pressure, it can it can change the bone marrow back to the original colour, which is just, it's really odd. Anyway, this patch that Colin thought that it might be cancerous, but it wasn't. Half oh, yeah. So that was that was kind of one thing. So that was, and then we had some last minute dramas with the electrics on the boat. So we had to find 10 grand from somewhere just to totally redo electrics on the boat, uh, which had been, you know, we had done them, but you know, not with the official boat builders. And I think we had too many solar panels basically on the boat and it was causing problems. So we had to have all of that redone. Um, so we were kind of back with the last boat that was, that was, you know, loaded onto, yeah. onto the containment um, and, you know, shipped over to Lagomera. Uh, and then, you know, it was in that time, that period of time where COVID different strains would come and go mm-hmm. and it, we'd gone through that those kind of few weeks had been kind of you, you know low sort of covid you know not too bad um and then suddenly it all started to pick up and i can't remember i think it was omicron something like that very i mean stupidly i had a massive party about four weeks before we left and um no one got covid from that but looking back or maybe even three weeks i mean it was just it was really probably the most stupid thing i could possibly have done well, you've got to celebrate yeah, with your friends I know. <laughs> before you go out to the ocean for over two months. I mean, you got to celebrate with your friends and still see them. I know, I know. But in the end, so we have you go here, as you'll know, with your, your team that you go to Lagomera two weeks before departure. 
and you know, there's a lot of sorting out of all of your, there's so much stuff that the kit list is, but you think there's a normal kind of faff factor of rowing. <laughs> I mean, I've gone, you know, and it's just like it says in the blurb, you know, everything with rowing and anything to do with a boat will always take twice as long as you think it's going to, yeah. you know, which is like even more so with ocean rowing. Um, but in that countdown, we're sort of getting everything ready. And then um, we, as when we arrived at the airport uh, that morning, my friend said, oh, she said, I'm just not feeling very well today. And we'd all done, you know, natural flows or whatever the night before that had been negative. But she said, I'm, you know, I'm feeling a bit coldy, so I'm going to wear my mask and, you know, wearing our mask. But, you know, she, throughout the day, she just started getting iller and iller and iller. And as we arrived in Lagomera, she said, I've lost my sense of taste and smell. And and we were like, we had this villa, which bizarrely, one of the rooms had a separate bathroom with a kind of double door thing. So we kind of got to the villa, shoved her into the room. Uh Locked up. (laughs) Yeah, locked her up, went to the chemist, bought some COVID tests, came back, gave it to her. And it literally just went positive in a matter of seconds. So then we were like, well, what the hell do we do? You know, we've, we've got two weeks to go. She's got COVID. I had been, I, you know, she was right next to me on the plane. Um, I'd, I'd had my booster 10 days before that. And it's probably like the best timed vaccination mm. ever in my entire life. But it was really, really, really stressful because, you know, we didn't know how she would recover. So we didn't know if she'd be well enough to do the row. Um, the organisers told us to kind of prepare to go as a trio, but we didn't know if we were going to get sick, um, you know, and it was kind of like a domino thing. And then, I mean, really luckily, probably for the whole fleet that she was ill that day, that her symptoms came out that day, because if not, we would have arrived. There's this pub called the Blue Marlin, sort of infamous pub on Lagomera. Everyone goes to the Blue Marlin. They get totally wasted for two weeks. <laughs> and then you know but and we could have gone that yeah. night spread covid around the entire fleet and you know everyone's dreams of two years would have been kind of completely destroyed yeah, yeah. so it was very it was lucky and the, you know they the the organizers were very fair on us so they joe just we we locked joe away for two for 10 days and um you know she kind of you know it was really really stressful and it was a real shame because that that two weeks in Lagomera is like as much part of the race as anything else um but yeah so when we had to kind of did all the packing they they put us in quarantine for one day and then we just tested and tested and tested and yeah just came out and and you know we were really worried with the rest of the crews that, that we might be sort of treated like kind of pariahs and that you know because who wants to put their journey in threat you sure. know? um but they were so welcoming and you know they really kind of we didn't that first week we didn't go to the bar which you know was a bit of a shame i think by the following sunday we thought okay we're probably out of the woods now you know it wasn't quite the and, you know, you know yeah. I mean, you know, we weren't long out of that period where you had to lock yourself away for 14 days, even if you'd been in contact. Um, but anyway, in the end, miraculously, we didn't get COVID. No one else in the fleet got COVID. Um, my friend recovered completely and uh, and we were able to go. So, it, you know, it, but it was really, really touch and go. I think there's like some super, super important lessons from that. We've spoke before about, um, and I always try to coming up to big events talk about how like something's going to go wrong you have to prepare for it if you're if you're constantly fighting to to 
to live in the perfect circumstances or be perfectly happy with everything, then you'll you'll never be happy. So it's yeah, it's all about kind of um, understanding that something's going to go wrong and and not 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 worry too much about it and just try and kind of plan for it. I like the other thing about saying you know you're saying that it's more stress getting to the start line than than after it. Again, like I think that's a common theme. I think everyone's experienced that before. And um, you probably didn't know that at the time though. Like you must have been thinking like, wow, we didn't even go on the water yet, and like all oh, these yeah. dominoes. Yeah, so I was yeah, starting yeah. to like, what next? What next? <laughs> what what next could possibly turn up? Yeah, but no, that's that's. I think that's really important. I, we talked about a little bit about you know all those things that you do before you get to the start line. It's how much like putting money in the bank, and then when you when the start when you know when the flag drops, you've got more money to spend than than your competitors. Um, and I think also like you know we've talked about winning's great. And everything going smoothly is great. But you don't learn a lot from that. Yeah. Nothing ever went yeah, wrong. Yeah. You don't learn a lot about yourself or your teammates. Or so if you're going to go and spend 50, 60 days together, um, knowing that you come through a crisis before you get there, is actually something good. So like turning perspective on things gone wrong, I think is always really useful. It's an, you can just learn a lot more from it. And like, yeah, especially any rowers or any crew, like use that as an opportunity to find a little bit out about yourself, about how you deal with the pressure. Things like that be super useful, especially like you don't know what's coming. Yeah. Big red. Absolutely. Like, wasn't that a great test for like how your crew reacts and like moves as a team? Like right before, like you go out on this massive unknown adventure. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, we it did kind of. We, we'd really sort of, you know, we were kind of a young crew together, and the fact that we're doing any kind of things together for sort of seven months or something at that point. And I, you know, I hardly also I knew Joe really well, but I hardly knew the other two really. You know, but and we were lucky that we all kind of bonded incredibly well together. Um, obviously, there were some stressful things that happened while we were out on the water. Um, but yeah, that de- you know, the, the, I would say that those two weeks in Lagomera were the, the kind of most intense, sort of challenging time because you're dealing with that uncertainty and that that you know having that ability to deal with that uncertainty is. It's a skill like any other skill that needs need practice. I mean, you don't get great at fixing problems by never ever having a problem. Yeah, like you have to be in that situation and learn how to get better at it. And also the mothership, the name. So this yeah. is that because it, you were all mums. Four mums, yeah, yeah. So we had, um, yeah, they, they called it the mothership. Actually, um, I can't remember whose stroke of genius it it was. So, I mean, some of the, you know, quite a lot of the the names for Atlantic boats are sort of puns yeah. and all the rest of it. But, you know, it was a really great name. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so all four of us mums, we had 11 kids between us. Wow. So, and uh, I think I was the oldest at 50, so I was 50 when we did it. And then the youngest um, with all to three. So, and kind of spanned that. And the kids, the youngest kid, I think, was maybe two or three perhaps at the time and then my daughter was the oldest so she i guess she was 15 something when we when we came in so we had you know all those different age kids sort of presented a, a different variety of problems you know so i think my daughter was kind of you know probably the most she was like no, no, no you, have, you know you have to do it mommy you have to do it and um you know she'd really started probably rowing by that point so i think she could really you, you know, love being on the water and would really understand why I was doing it. And my, my, I think my son and my, and Joe's son, um, who was sort of more sort of 12, 13 at the time, probably it was hardest for them because they were just sort of going into adolescence and just starting to understand the world. 
understanding the kind of fears and the dangers and everything that kind of could possibly lie in wait, but maybe not without the kind of maturity to deal with them. Mm. And um, and so for them, I think it was probably the most terrifying bit, um, and that they they were the ones that struggled completely after leaving um, the most. I think my son sort of slightly cut himself off from me before I did it because he maybe sort of worried that I was going to die, you know. So you know, which is is a, you know, it's always a worry. Um, and and the, but the younger kids much more in the day. You know, so they live day by day. So, so for that, the, the challenge was much more for the for the husbands kind of left behind with them. Mm. It's kind of like, where's mummy? Where's mummy? Where's mummy? You know, where is the old kid? That's interesting to see, like with the spread of ages, you can see how you know at what age you become more aware of yeah. debt or the yeah. world around you or certain things like that. It's quite interesting. It's a big thing, obviously, um, in rowing, particularly in sport at the moment, with Helen Glover um, being the first. Uh, British uh, uh, rower definitely to or mum to have rowed at the Olympics and she's back uh, having another go um, so I think it's an interesting thing to talk about um, and just in terms of like you said doing a sport like rowing certainly Atlantic rowing or something that takes loads and loads of time like the different challenges of, of like managing that as a mum yeah like what other what other things were sort of difficult between the four of you or things that you didn't think maybe would be an issue that came what in the run up to the row yeah. or the row itself? Um, in the run up, I guess, and thinking about how it was going to work, and I think the um, you know even in the run up, you do have to have that kind of time away from mm. your family. I mean, honestly, like I wouldn't have been able to do. I wouldn't. I, I was just in this kind of perfect situation where um, they already had the boat, they had already got the sponsorship, everything was kind of set up. Um, I was freelance at the time, so I could actually take the time off in order to do the training. So if I'd had a full-time job, I wouldn't have been able to do that because I would have had to take to, to squash that small amount of, uh, or that massive amount of training in such a small period of time would have been impossible. So, it, you know, it was a, just this perfect, everything kind of seemed to kind of fall into place and it made sense of me having been made redundant. You know, it felt the whole thing felt like fate, really. I'm not kind of big believer in fate and all these things, but it just seems like I'd kind of been on this hesitates use the word journey, but I will, you know. <laughs> and I'd also interviewed someone called Kelda Wood, who's the first disabled rower to row um, solo across the Atlantic. And so I'd, I'd, and that again, that was before I knew that I was doing this. And so I, I learned a lot more about the event itself doing that. Um, but yeah, with sort of families, you know, different, everyone's family dynamic is different. And so um, the, the the four families had had different issues to address. I think, you know, in some ways, you know, it is easier if you've got older kids just because they can get themselves to school and, you know, you don't, you know, my, I didn't have to worry about kind of that aspect of things. Um, Pippa, who, whose husband had done it before, he's a boarding school teacher, a deputy headmaster. So... For him, obviously, it's sort of for them. It was more logistically challenging to kind of put that in place before we left, because obviously, if you're a teacher and at a boarding school, there's just times when you can't be with your kids. You can't be doing a school run. You can't you know? So, um, but he also couldn't say no. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he couldn't say no, and around that was a kind of, and he, you know, like most station rowers, after they've done the row. Um, he was sort of obsessed with it, and and so it, it kind of gave him the opportunity to kind of relive mm. it through us as well. In fact, he did. I wrote an Instagram post every day when we were on the boat, 
and sent it to him and he uploaded it for us. So he kind of really sort of lived and breathed it with us while we while we were out there. Um, you know, and it was, it, and it, you obviously you're going, you go on the 12th, you leave Lagomero on the 12th of December, um, you know, and then you arrive whenever you arrived, um, but you miss Christmas. And so that was, a, yeah, as a journalist, you know, that was the peg. I was sort of, you know, why I'm running away from my kids this Christmas, you know, that kind of thing. And everyone sort of obviously picks up on that, you know, how can you leave your children at Christmas, you know. Um, funnily enough, you know, now my daughter's nearly 18, I do have that kind of sense of like, you know, it's not something I'd want to do right now because she's about to become an adult and, you know, just, you know, things will kind of change massively. But at the time... You know, I felt it, it was, you know, it was fine. I mean, also we'd been in the pandemic, which has a lot of, everyone knows, has a lot of concentrated yeah. family time. Sure. Everyone had been able to spend more time with their kids than than they sort of normally do. But also, the, really, the good thing about Christmas is that there's a lot going on. So, yes, you're missing Christmas Day with them. I think that's actually harder for us on the boat yeah. than it is for them at home because there's, like, you know, there's lots of people. I, I have to say that, um, so, I mean, various different things happened because COVID was kind of causing nightmares. So, if you remember, like in 2020, Boris had kind of cancelled Christmas yeah, just yeah, yeah. around, you know. So, this was the sort of, you know, first Christmas that people were going to be together. And then my daughter got COVID just beforehand. So, then they thought we we're going to have to cancel Christmas again. But then Boris changed the rules so that you didn't have to isolate for 10 days. You could do it for six. So that was fine. They could go off and spend Christmas with my sister. Um, but then Pippa's husband, uh, they were literally driving uh, to spend Christmas with some of the other, uh, another group, I think with Pippa's sister, Dins, um, and her family. And um, for some reason, doing COVID tests in the car. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and of course, one of the kids tested positive. So he had to turn around, drive back, and they had, to, they had nothing in the house. Like, he probably had a Christmas cake or whatever his half of the contribution was. You know, so on Christmas Eve, had to, like, go out, you know, with four and um, get them to write. They, they got they got four kids. Um, so one of my sisters got four, one's got three. Now my brain's gone. Um, anyway, but he had to go out and buy all of this food and, and just look after all of the kids on his own while, you know, we were on the boat. And so I think that was... Um, yeah, that was quite a sort of that was a challenge and so COVID just like threw in these kind of curveballs really that no one was expecting and kind of made the whole thing a little bit more stressful when when we were out on the boat than it otherwise would have been that's kind of that's one of my new favorite questions having spoken to a lot of uh, Olympians who've rode who had to row through COVID is it's sort of like what finding out how driven people made the best of a bad situation and they've all a lot of them have great stories about how like yeah well, this this stuff happened you know it was shit but we managed to do this and we did that and we flipped it on our head and i think again it's like it's really interesting to see how different people certainly people who are driven um very like you know have a have a single focus um manage to kind of make the best of it i also think with the chris like obviously christmas is is important but i think people have this kind of picture perfect view of how every family has two weeks off all like not if you're a nurse or if you're a military or there's like plenty of people that don't get to have it so i think like to be like oh how could you possibly leave your well sometimes you have to and it's a great example to your kids so um you know having to give up something that's big that's considered big or important you know in the pursuit of something that you know is more important or or a goal that you want to achieve so you know in terms of like 
showing them an example of, you know, sometimes you have to delay gratification or miss things, something certainly in the rowing world, how many rowers have to miss yeah. the weddings and parties and all those sorts of things because you've you've got this aim and I think we start to live in a world where everyone wants everything now. Yeah. And I think it's, I love to see examples of people who are like, no, it, you know, it takes time and you put work in and you're not going to enjoy it and there's going to be bad bits, but you know, there's a there's a goal at the end of it. Yeah, plus it must have been nice to get away from like all this COVID <laughs> stuff for for two months as well, because there's none of that in the ocean. It was that that I mean that once we once we'd set off, that was actually a really you know you are in this kind of bubble, you know, and and that that was quite nice, and you are kind of removed from the sort of world in that way, and and I mean that that's something you kind of slightly long for to be honest when you come back, you know. <laughs> sort of I do sometimes think of my little cabin weirdly was tiny 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 cabin you know but sort of I I kind of enjoyed being in that space even though it was so small and damp and you know it's sort of really odd that that you can just kind of you know in, enjoy that kind of being totally sort of cut off from everything mm. just about something about the kind of motherhood when I came back I wrote a couple of articles about it interviewed a couple of psychologists and and one she said something to me which I kind of think is really important that she said motherhood you know for women sort of motherhood is the desire adventure you know that that we shouldn't kind of society in some ways sort of thinks we shouldn't want any more from that but but why you know we we you know that that we're all born kind of wanting to seek adventure it's a natural part of the human state um but sort of women are sometimes told that it's not for them and um you know, and so it's good to kind of break out of that, and it's good to show that example that that you know we we get just as much enjoyment. You know, or we want to spread our horizons and spread our wings and and push things and take risks um, as much as men do. You know, and you know the 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 stats. Are, I looked at the stats yesterday, so I think we were like maybe 234, 35, 36, 37, something like that, of the number of women that have ever rowed an ocean. And um, men were sort of hovering up around the 1,000 mark, I think, when we went um, in 2021. So I looked yesterday, and so the number of women has now kind of gone up to about 332. So it's it's there are more women coming into ocean rowing. Um, there's a kind of group of sort of young women in their 30s who are kind of you know that they've done the Atlantic and then they've done the Pacific and now there's a group that are going off and doing the Indian Ocean you know and they're they're really sort of pushing the boundaries you know but um, that's awesome motherhood is one of the things that you know it, it's it's you, you tend to get so we were a little bit of an anomaly so you do the, you either get younger women who have no children or you get older women whose children who maybe don't have children or their kids are grown up. That whereas um, for the Atlantic row, the men seem to be able to kind of do it at any point, you know, mm. um, and that that is a bit of a difference. So we did, we did kind of, we, we definitely did kind of, we were unusual in that we had such a spread of ages of kids and such and such young kids. Um, so did this children in particular, the youngest, so that, you know, we're really sort of breaking down kind of barriers in that way, you know, and in the end, it was absolutely fine, you know, and the kids were fine, everyone were fine, the husbands were fine, everyone coped fine, you know, of course. And, it's um, never ever as bad as you yeah, could yeah, imagine yeah. in your head, yeah, 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 it's funny. Yeah, I think we were talking to Char uh, Charles Cousins, I don't know if it was on camera or not, but... Um, 
yeah, kind of putting in perspective how many people have done it. Um, there's certainly more people that have summited Everest. Mm-hmm. There might not be 300 women, but I would think probably more women who've gone to the top of Everest than, than rode the Atlantic. To yeah. Put it in that kind of perspective is, I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, it really it it is, and it's sort of we did we we did we did it three charities, um, women in sport being one of them. When we came back, we did a kind of little kind of um, chat to them, and and one of the women, women in sport said one of the things that women do when they come back from these or when they do kind of hard events is they tend to minimise them, and so they'll go, oh, you know, it's easy, like, and you can do it, you know, and. That's exactly what we did. We were like, oh, it wasn't that dangerous after all. It was all fine. And um, when, we just, when we were still on the water and the bounce come in, we sort of, you know, saw that one of the Scottish the five uh, guys that did it, and Scottish guys, who instantly had 10 kids to three of them, I think, but no one ever mentioned that. But um, they came in and they, and they did an interview with the BBC and this guy was like, the waves were 43rd and we were crying behind our sunglasses and we were like, you know, told this story about how little it was. And we were like, is this the same race? You know, right? <laughs> it was not our experience at all. And, um, it, you know, so that there's that kind of, I don't know, you know, we're kind of wanting to minimise our achievements in some ways and we don't kind of, you know, we're not bare chested when we come in and we're not, there's not that kind of macho thing. There's that kind of like, well, we've done it, you know. Yeah. It's a sort of, it's a different, it's yeah. a different approach. And the old bravado thing. We yeah. spoke to Paddy, the uh, current Cambridge Yeah, I mean, I was about um, to say, yeah. Coach, and he was talking about, obviously, um, on the whole, not with everyone, but um, women are much better or worse at uh, once having achieved something than convincing themselves that they can't do it again. So, or are they not quite that good anymore? Yeah. So, like, um, once a guy has um, gone to the Olympics, and he will uh, always be as good. Yeah, as that. not yeah. be as good at it, but, but but won't be held back by his belief. You know, it's like, oh, I can do that. Like, I know I can do that. Yeah. But apparently, yeah. women on the whole can be a lot sort of almost convince themselves out of it. Yeah. Some different mentality, but yeah, sort of France sort of folding into the same kind of area. But yeah, and maybe it just comes down to a bit male bravado. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really, I, that's interesting. And I mean, well, everyone always says, first question someone asked me when I got off, apart from the kind of immediate interview, actually, I think it was the same Scottish guy. I'd given that interview to the BBC, and I was kind of like, what were we talking about? And he goes, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And um, so, yeah, I probably would do it again, you know, but but yeah. you do, but you sort of, you, you do down yourself. That's definitely true, you know, and I'm like slightly messed up my hands you know, can say, oh, with my hands be all right, you know, and, and those doubts kind of creep in again, you know. Everyone gets to that, yeah, that kind of imposter syndrome stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk about the, the specifics of it, how long it takes, where you where you go from, where you finish, some of the things in the boat, like I said, the cabin and stuff like that. How many competitors, yeah. what sort of like dangers are being like posed to you out there? Obviously, you've got like sharks and, and, and other animals like circling around you and everything. Yeah, so it's basically, so um, Talos was the Atlantic Challenge, so goes back 12th of December, you leave Lagomera, it's 3,000 miles across the Atlantic and you come in at Antigua. Um, I don't know. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so the boats, in our fleet there were about 36 boats and they can be singles, pairs, trios, fours and the occasional five. Um, but the boats, so most of the boats are made by a boat builder called Rannock. 
and um, they are sort of generally fours, really. So five people. I'm not actually sure how people do it as fives. It would be there would be a real lack of space. So there would only be four rowing spots. Yeah, well, there are actually only three rowing spots. Okay. So um, so you generally row two on two off. Um, there's a cabin at either end. So one cabin is slightly is kind of you're you're flat along the bottom of the boat where you sleep, and you you've got uh, sort of seats are in the middle you've got your compartments down the side where you keep your food all that kind of stuff in that cabin if you're sleeping your kind of legs go underneath those compartments you're sleeping kind of on the floor of the boat um and you've got all the instruments and stuff in that compartment and then um so you know it, that that's it the sort of nose of the boat and stern and so i was there um and i'm not sure if i could do it sleeping in that cabin really claustrophobic um but you can stand out with a door open the same which you're not supposed to have open but um that's it's a bit easier to climb in and out of and then our cabin bow cabin it's a little bit more like a traditional kind of cabin on the boat um so sort of triangle shaped you know and and you just about have enough well we did have enough room to lie down flat until we decided to put the power anchor into the nose about two days into the row, um, which we then had to sleep sort of semi propped up on this power anchor for most of it. Is that the the chute? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. sort of what you put down. So if you're being dragged back in the opposite direction, power anchor down. Um, not something we had to do, which again sort of testaments the fact we did in some ways our kind of race was perhaps um less challenging with others, but we we had different challenges, I think. Um so and then you've got three seats in the middle um so generally speaking you row in two of them don't row in the stroke seat for most of them row in the bow and the middle seat um sometimes you would row three up but that third seat tends to be where you do your cooking where you go to the loo where you do your washing where you know you hang out you know like everything happens in that seat which is why if there's five people on board the boat like I just, you know, I'm not that like, I don't know how they do it because there's just no kind of spare space whatsoever. So you you, you just have this kind of tiny, I don't know, was it 28 foot or something? But you you just have this, you know, tiny amount of space. Even the fact that for the bow cabin we had to kind of walk up those couple of meters to that bit made a tiny bit of difference after 40 days on our, the, you know, our wobbliness and, you know, we just used our legs slightly more than the people in the same cabin, which is some really weird. Um, Interesting. So in terms of dangers, generally, for the fleet, um, so obviously you're totally at mercy of the wind and the waves and all the rest of it. What everyone always says to me, what they presume is that you have a boat going alongside and, and when you go, no, we're absolutely on our middle of the ocean people really struggle to understand that they just can't quite get their heads around it so you know you set out from Lagomera you everyone goes there a million ways to cross the ocean you know million directions everyone goes the direction that they think is best and um there are two support yachts that wait until the last boat is 500 miles away from the shore Lagomera then they leave one goes to the Azores to wait if they're to pick so if there's a non-emergency, they will come to your boat and pick you up. So non-emergency would be something like someone with chronic seasickness who couldn't carry on. But then, you know, 
they will say, absolutely, you should do your utmost to remain on your boat because if you get off the boat, you're on, on their boat, but they're not taking you in the way. You're, just, you're still crossing the Atlantic in 40 days, 50 days or whatever. Um, and then the other boat uh, is supposed to come and visit you once, uh, take photos and then say hello, <clears throat> but we never got a visit. So, because oh. um, like, someone else had an emergency which they couldn't assist with, but they they went over to sort of offer more support. Um, and that emergency was that boat had been hit by Blue Marlin, a Blue Marlin strike. Marlin strikes. Heard about this? Yeah. yeah. So in the in the twenty twenty race, um, I think there were three or four Marlin strikes, including one photo where a guy woke up and and the spike of the Marlin was. Sort of you know, it would come up between his legs to see this sort of thing and missed, missed every important body part. Um, but, and they, they were sleeping in the stern. He was in the stern, I think. So when it was just, it just came through the floor. And, you know, that's the boat is not, you know, it's robust point. So you um, said that they think it's a fish that they're going for or they're just confused? So, yeah, we, so we, well, what, what we, what they, what the organisers thought is that pandemic, there were fewer cruise ships going, so fewer, less food being chucked out from these cruise ships. So that then, normally, like the shoals of fish would kind of go around and follow the cruise ship. So then they would start following the Atlantic rowing boats instead. And then the Blue Marlin are just trying to strike the tuna or whatever it is around you, but they they hit the boat instead. I am so glad that guy didn't wake up to the most unimaginable pain possible. I know. So, I mean, you know, there I bet there was another one I think where it spiked the boat um and then and then it broke the spike broke off and it kind of this was the previous year then, you know, went crazy because it lost its spike. Um, those people weirdly had sort of and some anti shark stuff you throw in the water, I think, um, and that that kind of they managed to kind of you know get rid of the blue marlin in that way. Um, so there was a bit of talk before we set up about do you Kevlar your boats and, and that kind of thing, but you know in the end like no one did anything. I mean, and one one boat got stuck by a blue marlin and it went into the one of their food compartments, which you know it's fine they could patch it up. They were another kind of crew of sort of four men who were slightly sort of a little bit older than us, maybe, but they do really well. Um, they were just ahead of us and they finished just behind us in the end. Um, I got told by someone else that so you, you kind of have like effectively like a cork that like you just shove in the hole. Yeah, I mean, well, I think in, a couple of, in the previous year, a couple of the spikes had kind of remained. Oh, so it just so then you, off. Yeah, yeah. You, so you saw off the spike. And then kind of, yeah, you've got this sort of pussy and I mean that, you know, you can use various different things, but there's lots of kind of, yeah, you've got the corks or kind of other bits that you can kind of fill the hole with. But so you can carry on going, you know, unless it's sort of disastrous. Hmm. The thing that's most prone to breaking down is the water maker. So you have a, the desalinator so that, you know, we'll, you run it half an hour every day, that pulls up the seawater. Um, and then, you know, it gives you lovely drinking water, but it is prone to problems. It's a Sky Western suit there that you're going to see before you go. And that is a video, absolutely everything that he's doing will show you all the kind of problem solving. Yeah. Um, so we we did have one problem one day, but an, an Dutch crew, three Dutch women, they actually had a little kind of, they flooded and the engine flooded on the water maker. 
and they had to actually remove the kind of figures elements of the watermaker in the middle of the Atlantic and managed to do so successfully, which is, that is not a bad job. And the watermaker is probably the most, well, beyond the power, the most stressful thing, because you have a hat, everything has a backup on the boat, so you need to take a backup, plan B, manual backup with you. So you will have, you know, and, um, you know, wind up torches and all the rest of it. So you have a hand pump watermaker. Okay. Something like it, mate, and you can do four litres an hour or something like that. But I mean, that that's like consistent pumping. Oh, that's brutal. You know, and it, I mean, it looks like a bit like a sort of large orange press or something like that. And you kind of dined in, you to bring the water up and then, you know, but well, we only ever used it. I don't think anyone, anyone really had to use it. You carry some emergency water on the boat, but not nearly enough to... It's used as ballast, isn't it? Yeah, you can use it as ballast, but, you know, um, you're not... It's wouldn't be enough to kind of keep you going if mm-hmm. everything kind of breaks down. You get so you need to have... A time penalty if you use it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so when Cracknell and yeah. um, Ben Fogel did it, yeah, did... Did they, they finished first, but because of the time penalty, they ended up getting dropped in second place, yeah, I think, yeah. from memory. Like well, that. because they dropped their ballast. So, yeah, no, their, their, their water machine stopped working. So they had to drink some of the ballast, some of the water that was supposed to be left ballast. Oh, okay. And it's sort of like an emergency thing, basically. It's like if you use it, you're not supposed to. So if you use it, you get the Right. Yeah, so ours broke on Christmas Eve. So oh, present. <laughs> <laughs> Only temporarily. And then, of course, the guy from Western Superman, he's like, call me at any time. You know, so I was calling Jim and coming over, like, it's not on the phone, it's not on the phone, it's Christmas Eve. And then you, you can always get somebody's, and there's 20 Atlantic campaigns have somebody 24 hours a day that you can phone. And um, and so I phoned him, and he just, so there is one problem that goes wrong with it, which is sort of standard. It gets a bit of an air bubble in it. Yeah. It wasn't that. But then he just said, you're just going to have to, you, you had to, to take all the tubes off one by one and then just get it together again. And anyway, I mean, I took the first bit off and then actually that was where the problem was. So I managed to get it fixed quite quickly. But he said to me, yeah, we, I'll, I'll give you permission to drink two litres or something today. So you have to get permission from okay. race control if you're going to drink anyone, sir. Because I couldn't get hold of gin initially. I think that was why I kind of you got that kind of, you know, a small... That's because it's Christmas Eve, um, but you know that anyway. That, that that Christmas Eve was the start of all the um, start of the dramas in the boats. But up until then, it being a little bit insane. So you had good two weeks, and then and then the challenge really kicked in. Yeah, so it had been very quiet. So some so sometimes you leave Lagomera, um into go. You just go straight into horrific conditions, so straight into the wind, and it's really you know that's when people tend to get the worst seasickness. So if you don't have that kind of transition, um, so we kind of went. It was you know it was choppy. It wasn't totally flat, but um, it was kind of sort of normal kind of Atlantic day. Um, but our, our skipper was seasick for about 24 hours, 48 hours, and then she got better. And, you know, the rest of us kind of, we were what I would describe natural ocean rowers. So we were, we just sort of totally adapted to the boat and its surroundings and, you know, everything. And the only thing we had really dry mouth and then thought that was like the adrenaline or whatever. And it, and it, it turned out that is the seasickness patches that you put up on your, you may know, put behind your ear. Mm-hmm. So they can make you get this sort of dry mouth. So 
we ditched those and quickly and and things improved but um yeah they, it, it was quite flat really for the first few days and that that was you know people found that very challenging in other boats because you, you've got the app yb races and it will sort of calculate and it'll say you know it'll calculate on the speed that you're doing right there and then and tell you how long you've got until you get to antigua so you, everyone going so slowly to begin with it with saying things like 65 days to Antigua or 100 days to Antigua or something like that. So everyone was kind of going really mad. And those first few days, I mean, I remember as kind of magical. You know, it's intense and you're getting used to it and and you're do two hours on, two hours off is your regime for the fours. The threes have a slightly different pattern. So pairs are two hours on, two hours off, but obviously solo. Um, you you know, however you like. Um, but the, you know, you're kind of getting into it. Your limbs are burning. Um, but it, it's kind of the, the kind of the most intense. Kind of everything is new and fresh and exciting, and there's so much adrenaline flowing. And you, you know, you you're not yes at that point, and you go through this kind of arc where you're. I think your body hurts in the first week. And then you start to feel superhuman for a couple of weeks, and then you, you start going to decline, and everything kind of goes horribly wrong. Um, so you get close to the finish line. Yeah, yeah and, and you kind of see the finish line. Um, I would say that um, you know, these if you talk about life lessons that you're going to learn from going across the Atlantic, so one of those things is about the size of your task ahead of you. And honestly, if you got on that boat on the and thought. I've got to row 3,000 miles. You know you have to weigh 3,000 miles, but if you think about it every day, especially at that time when you're going so slowly at the beginning, you'd go mad because you think, I can't do it, I can't do it. It's, so you have to take everything day by day and then hour by hour, you know, and you set yourself a target, so three nautical miles per hour. You know, they generally say, well, they used to say that three nautical miles per hour would is generally a, a speed that would, that would you'd win with that with that but that's not the case anymore i think because it's getting more more neat and the boat's getting better and and all the rest of it um but we did have three school miles per hour set as our kind of you know that was that was our goal that we wanted to achieve every hour so it's sort of breaking things down some step by step bit by bit um but yeah so we did have we did have quite a kind of you know we eased into it and as rowers we took advantage of that flash flat water and to speed ahead. Um and then we were in the top ten in the first hundred few days. Um then our we had a variety of female crews, there were quite a lot of female crews in our year. And it's another female four, um, called One Ocean Crew. And before we left, they you know, everyone put stuff on their, their Instagram. And um, they'd said something like, we're setting off and we're, we're going to win the Murden Trophy, which is the female trophy. And so then we were like, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, we might be old, but, um, you know, we're pretty athletic. And um, and so we, we really, that kind of spurred us on. You know, this is all about the things that kind of make you go faster. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to say in when we were in the blue boat, you know, never give your, never give your opponents a reason to pull harder. Yeah. And they'd given us exactly that, you know. Um, so we were really, we didn't really know what to expect in the first few days. You don't, you, you wouldn't know if we'd be that fast, you know, when you've been running the sailing, you've got the tides and, you know, 
we were a bit shocked having seen ourselves go kind of six minutes per mile per hour sometimes in the zone and you know suddenly it was a struggle even to get past two initially when we left Lagomera um and that was even the currents were hard the wind wasn't in um anyway we very quickly realized that we were kind of neck and neck with one nation not through not not visually but on the app terms of, yeah on the app with distance to go to Antigua how long how long after you set off before you were completely on your own I would say probably by night four or five, something like oh, that. So you could still see a few, yeah. yeah. You see the lights. And that was, you know, this lovely time in early evening where, the, you know, the sun would go down and you'd start to see the other lights and you could kind of race them, you know, in that we, we, like, absolutely had this kind of power hour, which mm-hmm. is sort of an hour after the sun goes down, which I don't know if it's mental or whether it's actually true, but... You know, the sea state would often seem to change, and we and we'd really start to speed along. And we love we actually, despite all the challenges of the night, we loved rowing at night, um, and we seemed to do our best. If I think back now, I think I think about us like you know flying along in the middle of the night, yeah. right? and not really kind of remembering us flying along in the middle of the day. Why? Why do you think that is? I do. I think it's something to do with. You know, the, when you're in the day, you've got this kind of vast expanse. You know, you look around, you've got this great circle of ocean. When you're at night, yes, you know, sunlight's really clear and you've got all the stars and, you know, sunlight's just pitch black. The moon does weird things, you know, and the, the moon was rising as the sun was setting to begin with. But then I'd advise anyone to do an ocean row to, to work out what the moon is going to be doing when they do their row because it takes you by surprise when it's pitch black sometimes. Mm-hmm. So the moon rises later and later. Um, so sometimes when it's really dark, you, you actually get the feeling like you're covered in a tunnel and um, and and that that's, you're kind of, that in some way, sort of, that feeling of being surrounded makes you feel like we're going faster, perhaps. And it, people struggle to describe what it's like to burn nice on the ocean, but someone on the, on one of your teams other said it's like being blindfolded on the fucking Bronco, you know, those things that they have on lots of balloons and stuff like that, yeah. strapped to an ergo, you know, and that, that was, sorry, an ergo strapped to a, to a bucking Bronco with a blindfold on. And that will give you an idea of what it's like. But I used to describe it as like being in a car in a country lane, reversing backwards up a hill, which if that makes any sense whatsoever. It's it's this sort of weird, you get how this weird thing of being enclosed. Yeah, yeah. And you can't see where the waves are coming from. You can get these massive sort of side swiping waves that come and shoot under the boat. Um, so night, you know, nights are weird. Um, yeah, just to get to go back to the dangers again. So really, got um, the blue marlins. Sharks are, you know, probably okay, but um, the wind and the waves. But my biggest fear before going was capsizing. Mm-hmm. And it, people do capsize, and and the boat is designed to self right. Um, but my real fear was capsizing, not self righting, being left in the Atlantic in the middle of the night, floating upside down, and you would have two people in the water strapped on with your, you know, got your tethers, um, and then two people in the cabin that you would then have to get out of the cabin without not, you know, you're not tethered on when you're in the cabin. So that's always the, the most dangerous point in the boat is 
when you come out of your cabin, when you do the shift change, um, because you've got that moment where you're not tethered or, you know, one person is untethering and the other person is tethering. Yeah. So if you have a freak wave at that point, you know, which can happen, um, that that's the kind of most dangerous moment. Because if you get swept overboard, then, you know, you are essentially dead, really, you know. You're wearing a life jackets. No, no. So nice. never... The lights at night. There's lights on the boat, yeah. Not so we're two not on us. No, we did. We did all take head torches. But we never used them. Um, so it's impossible to like swim back to the yeah. boat. Really, the streams are too strong. Or? Yeah, the currents is just you're just the boat. Although Ben Fogel did fall out of the boat and he did miraculously get back into the boat. I think Ben Fogel and James quite an old pitch pole, which where the boat kind of goes over itself. Yeah. Rather than turning, um, you know, it's the end comes up and goes over, which is even more terrifying than capsizing normally. And he got, he wasn't tethered and he got chucked out of the boat. And I mean, it's a miracle really that he got back into the boat. So, so that, that, and there's a, the most recent death was a, they do some commercial crossings and they had a boat, maybe like nine or 10 rowers. And I think at that point people were ankle tethered. Like a paddleboard coming kind of tether. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just not strong enough, and so they had a freak wave and knocked this guy overboard. And I think that you know the captain put out his hand and just missed him, and and then he more washed overboard and and he died. And um, before we set off, before you set off, like a mayor, you have something called the death chat, you know, really, and they just that's Ian, the safety officer. Basically saying, don't be selfish. Um, he, he said, you know, if you fall off the boat, you die. That's it. That's the end of it. That your rest of your crew will carry it around the rest of your life, the rest of their lives that they didn't manage to save you. Um, and he said, so don't forget to put your tether on. Don't keep the ca- you know, don't keep the cabin door open because if the cabin door is open and you get hit by a wave and you get knocked over, that's when you, yeah, if the doors open and you capsize and limbs start right. So, um, that meant regardless, most ocean rowers leave the cabin door open at some point in the race. Did you? <laughs> well, we did because sometimes it just gets so hot, you know. And and so in the end, you sorry, Ian, but um, <laughs> but yeah, in the end, you make a judgment, yeah. And and you know, you do make a judgment about the sea state, and and just it's the, the other cabin becomes like a sauna. Um, but then sometimes I was I was kind of the boat policeman and he's woman in many ways. Um, um, so one of my jobs was to make sure people were shutting your hatch door. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the day if it's nice and calm, yeah, it's going to be pretty. But at nighttime when you can't see anything, and yeah, you're coming out and you're having to. Oh, well, I don't, yeah, nighttime. Yeah, nighttime. There was you know. My friend Jo used to have a nighttime routine where she'd clean her face and then she'd kind of throw the cotton wool out of the hatch door. And I'd be like, could you close the hatch door, please? And you know, it's one day, like, you see these rays kind of come all up. And it was, you know, that that's the time when it's kind of gets a bit risky. Yeah. Especially because of the equipment. Nice. Nah, sure. Did you ever, no one ever jumps in for fun swimming on a rope? Uh, yeah, 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 you have to clean the bottom of the boat. Oh, okay. I didn't actually, which is, for whatever reason, I don't know, I didn't want to do it. So, simply, well, as I said kind of earlier on in the chance, I don't, I prefer being on the water rather than in it. Oh, yeah, it would freak me out. Yeah. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They could just look down, like, 
I know. Like, like being it, in a vast nothingness. But it is, there is that kind of weird feeling. I do slightly regret it now, actually, I have to say. I wish I'd done it, but it, it carries with it its own risks. So you, you, I actually don't think we needed to do it because we'd actually, most people polished the bottom of their boat, but our weather route was a sailor and we painted anti-foul on the bottom mm. of our boat and to stop the barnacles and stuff growing on it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's what they sling down. Um, so you get off, you get out with your tether on, you jump in and you and you have to go around and scrape the boss barnacles off the bottom of the boat. Um, Just so, to get more speed. Yeah, to get more speed. You know, people say oh, it makes a massive difference. I can't say we ever sort of really felt it made a massive difference. We also wondered whether it attracts the fish and therefore if it attracts the fish, it attracts the blue marlins, which I think our skipper was worried about. <laughs> Um, for the first time, Joe and Did went in. It was very flat, and you know, I've got some quite funny video. Um, second time, maybe a bit testy. But the third time they went in, it was really like a little bit rocky, and I think they Joe in the end only did half the rudder, which I think might have affected us slightly in terms of our steering. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it, that. I think she got freaked out on the on the second go because you know perhaps we weren't watching out for as quite as well as we should have been, and you know there's a bit where they're kind of out of sight, you know, and if you kind of you know get your head gets knocked on the on the side of the boat, you know that that's definitely a kind of area of danger that moment when you're kind of cleaning the boat. I think. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like how wavy it is, like obviously, like you were doing lots of blogging and writing on the on the ocean. I talk about remote work, but uh, <laughs> but in terms of like how, how stable is it? Like obviously, if you got your mobile phone, like uh, do, you, do you worry that it's gonna fall out, or you know, if you sleep, like how often can like you know, do you, do you just wake up and like the boat is shaking, or is it quite stable the way they built? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. The um, you know, and it, it's sort of bizarre. It's kind of the one of the things that I sort of almost kind of can't remember in some ways, you know, and... and you just get used to it. Yeah, you really get used to it. And that kind of motion of the boat is, is kind of really extreme in some ways. Um, I mean, it's pretty rocky. The The waves... We're constantly searching for the trade winds, which was our kind of... You know, everyone had said, you go to the Atlantic... There'll be these really big waves, but they'll they'll push you along, and they'll let you know you go up and down them, and you learn how to surf them, then blah blah blah. You know, it wasn't like that at all. We had really choppy waves, short waves, and that were really tricky and really difficult to get used to. And we hardly ever had these lovely big waves that just sort of pushed us along and meant that we didn't have to row. You know, mm-hmm. we rowed like ninety nine point nine percent of the time. But yeah, you you're kind of it's really not in more than the kind of motion in some ways. I kind of remember the noise. And so when you're in the cabin, there's just this constant slap, slap, slam. And and then there's the, the, the noise of the oars and then just this banging sometimes. Yeah. Like sometimes it's like, well, the hell are these bangs, you know? And that's just like the noise of the boat and the waves hitting the boat. I mean, sometimes there, there, were, there were one occasion when I was in the cabin, I really, I really thought we'd gone over cat-sized and there were just this massive bang and you know i don't know what it was but yeah we do i mean you know that's just being whacked on one side by by the waves and really annoyingly 
if you videoed waves, they, they don't look nearly as good. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to catch the waves. Like you just you just can't they just you you know, it just doesn't happen with the it's not like the perfect storm and you George Clooney and this amazing kind of big wave, but they were really big sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. There's a lot of debate and everyone goes, oh, they were 20 foot, they were 30 foot, they were 40 foot, you know. Now weather reaches go, it says, well, you never have more than a five meter swell or something like that. But, you know, they they were big at some points, you know. Um, but I would say that you know, the big waves, were, you know, they are your kind of friends, really. And, and they're fun. They're the ones that are really fun to go up and down, not scary. I mean, yeah, I guess if you go to the Atlantic, like you want to experience like some of that. Yeah. What, what ocean, like how, how it behaves, what that's like. Did you notice like any difference in like what the Atlantic was like that as you went along the journey? Like obviously like you've got different ridges and different like ocean beds uh, across that. And also like I, I was wondering like about the temperature of the water. Like is it just always really cold or does it does it change and like differ between different places on the journey? Um another interesting one. So the um in terms of the birds, funny enough, when I before we left, someone I said, "Well, how do we know we're getting near the Caribbean?" And they said, "Well, when the birds start arriving, actually, we had birds all the way through, and birds were really kind of amazing part of the journey. And then kind of, you know, we sort of we regarded the birds as our sort of spirit animals, you know. And there, there was, you know, you feel like it's the same bird, but it's not. But you know, these birds kind of go with you, and and it is company." And you've oh, yeah. got you've got nothing else but miles and miles around you, but but these birds. Um, I'd say that you know it's very there's a marked difference. You go south for quite a long time. You know, for the first few days you're going south, and then you turn, um, and that quite that feels quite different just in terms of the sun and your perspective of the you know you suddenly stop seeing the sunrises so well, uh, sunsets so well, and you know the sure. um, you know that changes. Um, you know, conditions get more testy as you sort of go further out into it. As you get further to the Caribbean, you start seeing these sort of larger sort of patches of algae. I think on the water, it feels. I think you feel you feels the most different when you when you start to get to the Caribbean. You and the weather starts to change. It gets much more squally. Um, so some schools are kind of mad, you know, and you, suddenly, like out of nowhere, it'll be a bright blue sunny day absolutely still and calm you know and suddenly see this kind of patch of gray and out the corner of your eye and you're like and then it just comes closer and closer and closer and then suddenly you're in this massive wind tunnel which you hope is pushing you the right direction but not always and you, there you just put your walls up and you just get blown along like five six seven knots whatever it is you know wow and, you, and you're zooming along and then it, that'll happen for about five or ten minutes and then the heavens will open and it'll rain for ten minutes and then just goes away and then the sky is blue again and you know that that so that you know that that happens a lot as you kind of get close so that's the bermuda triangle yeah <laughs> then there, there is a i think when you you come there's a ridge i can't remember what it's called but as you as you kind of basically come to the atlantic meets the caribbean um and the kind of base of the landmass you know that 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 can be quite difficult and it didn't happen with us in our year um, but people can get across the whole Atlantic and then capsize in the last 24 hours. So, you know, that, that you know, and then hopefully kind of get, I read a story in the Daily Mail about an older kind of female four who'd done it or trio 
and they capsized, suddenly capsized like three times in 24 hours or something like that. It, you know, and one woman telling me broke her arm and, you know, so they, these things can just sort of take you by surprise kind of at any point. But the, the, the currents and the really difficult in our year um, was the sea state. Yeah. And it's really hard to explain to a river rower. You know, it's so frustrating because you basically think, I put my oars in and I pull hard and the boat will go faster. Well, that's not always the case in an ocean rowing boat. And sometimes you actually make the boat go slower by putting your oars in and pulling hard. And and so, I mean, it was really, you know, sometimes we'd just put the oar in and just very gently pull it through the water and that would give us like point one or two kind of pips higher mm-hmm. than not having the oars in at all. But that was, that was it. And... It, it, we'd call this, there was something we'd call it like icing the cake, which is where you put your oar in the water and it actually feels like you're putting your oar into concrete. Like, so that all you can do is like, it's like you're slicing, you're, you're spreading the icing just on the top of the cake. So it's just that top layer of water. That's all you can do. Oh, okay. And then it's really, really, really hard to explain, but sometimes it would just feel like concrete. It's like you're rowing through mud and that that's just the currents going different directions. And not... So you're just going to scrape the surface. Yeah. And then other, you know, very few, we had really few days where I'd say we had ideal conditions. Some days you just like, you know, beautiful kind of gentle waves with the currents going in the right direction. You barely have to row. You just, you're sort of rowing along. You just, you know, over three knots, you know, and it was just, it was absolutely beautiful and that hardly ever happened. Um, and th- that was the biggest surprise to me, I think. And I think that's sort of one thing that no one really explains to you. No one really tells you how to row or or how that's going to work. I wrote one kind of mad Instagram post about kind of all the different rowing styles that you would do. And you do the kind of one, like really, like you'd like, Bow side blade in, brown straight. It's like I call it climbing the stairs. You know, you'd be like this, you know, and, and trying like, to find the water. Yeah, and yeah. Re- and I've got pictures on my phone of just how my shins looked, you know, and the, you just lose your wall or whatever, it'll come crashing back against your shins, you know, and you get bru- your bruises go just just worse and worse and worse and worse as you go. Might the last day, like they're so bruised my legs. But we did. We 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 got into a. So the difficult conditions started from Christmas Eve onwards. So we had our nightmare before Christmas, so the water maker broke. That was our first flying fish attack that evening. So the fish came in and started landing in the middle of the boat. What? So they do, I think they're attracted by the light. So they just, oh. they come and crash on board. And then we span out of control on Christmas Eve. Our auto helm broke. It was windy. It was just starting to get windier. And and we kind of we didn't really know where we we'd been pushed north actually, and we didn't know what was happening. And then I went bonkers, and I just stayed on the oars for about five hours in a row because I was I thought we'd lost ground. I thought we'd lost, you know, with ocean one ocean crew would be kind of miles away, totally disorientated. That was our first massive row, and um, we were you know so on Christmas Day, like when it was dawn, like ever like. Everyone was crying. It was awful. We had a massive row. Me and Pippa had presents from our husbands. The other two didn't have presents from their husbands. You know, it's just we had um, some someone given us this freeze-dried Christmas dinner that they had, you know, done for them especially, which was lovely. But 
you know, it was all, it was awful. And then we decided, we put some music on and then watching in the air came on and then this bird started swooping around the boat. And then we were like, okay, it's going to be all right in the end, you know. And then and then we got over that bit and, and it got better. But Christmas was really the worst day, I think, was a bit insane. But yeah, that's kind of like I so said, those challenges. Are, oh, by the way, also, I love that you were like, yeah, yeah, the, the crossing was easy. <laughs> when the water thing broke and this one and this one, it doesn't sound that easy. And we never got a good day's rowing. Like, <laughs> that's pretty hard to me. <laughs> um, I also love the competitiveness of like, yeah. oh no, this other crew's going to be ahead, so I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to stick. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, like, um, so do do you think that that was kind of just like you said, like disorientation, tiredness, these kind of things that come in, and then you just start making up things in your head? Like, is there a way to get through that? Like you said maybe just put put some good music on. Is that a good good one? Yeah, and music is so important. And we slightly messed up our music. So after my friend had to have work, had done her 13 hours of, of music and she'd done that classic Spotify thing where you, you plug it in to download and then the phone switches off or whatever and none of it and downloaded bath, bath about four songs. And so we got on the boat and realised that I hadn't downloaded wasn't until we were on the boat and so I'd I had a playlist of about four or five hours of a few playlists but I'd done the same with the Leonard Cohen album I only had Suzanne it's a song and um and it yeah I mean music kind of really gets through them but our speaker like I don't know lost the charging lead on day one or something you know so we were just listening <laughs> directly from our phones and got to be a bit careful with your power because of the solar power and stuff mm-hmm. like that so and generally, so Spotify will run out after 30 days. So you need to download to your actual phone as well, or Apple Music, or whatever it is, which we'd have like two, by after 30 days, we had about two albums of oh. the same kind of, same music. And I, I, so I got into this really weird habit. So eight o'clock every evening, I had a break from seven till nine and have lunch, have supper, talk to my husband. And then at eight o'clock, I would switch the red light on in the cabin and I would listen to Suzanne by Leonard Cohen over and over and over again <laughs> for 45 minutes. And it was like a weird form of meditation. And the the words are interesting because it's about Jesus and I'm not particularly religious, but it, it's about drowning sailors, you know, like it's, it's really, and if I hear that song, it just it like cuts into my soul now, you know, like there's just... There's nothing that will transport me back to the boat quicker than listening to that song by Leonard Cohen. It's just so weird. But yeah, that that, that those are the kind of I mean, music telling at you know, you'd like to say that we had really profound conversations, but we didn't. <laughs> we uh it, you know, we talked about interior design, we talked we you have to do these alphabet things where you go through the alphabet like A is for Apple and then you memory games, you know, what you can't because you can hardly formulate thoughts in the middle of the night. But to keep yourself awake, the only thing sometimes you can do is talk, but you don't have the kind of power to kind of form a conversation. So you're like you have to do these memory games and go through these ABCs kind of all these sort of weird, stupid things to keep you awake. And I struggled the most to keep awake. I, I got shingles, um, which started to fell off probably just after New Year. What um, are shingles? Shingles is, so if you have um, chicken pox young, when you're younger, sure. when you're older, you can get shingles as a sort of, it, the virus remains dormant in your body. Oh, I see. And then it comes out. 
and um, you typically get spots or a rash on one side of your body and, and you feel like crap, whereas that would be hard to kind of <laughs> pick yeah. out whether I specifically felt worse or not. I, I know that I felt kind of feverish for a couple of days and got headaches and stuff. Um, and I had sort of bad spots on, on one side of my body. And then eventually we got a photo to the race doctor and he just said, have you ever had jingle or chickenpox before? And I said, yeah. And so he said, well, you've probably got shingles. So that, you know, that was something else that was, you know, it was, was difficult. Um, but so that meant that I went through this patch where I could barely stay awake in the middle of the night on some shifts. My worst shift, I did one hour where I fell asleep 12 times. And I, so I would, I'd wake up, I'd row for two minutes, I'd fall asleep. And you, you, you can, you can continue to row while you're asleep. And um, which sounds really weird, but you just carry on rowing. And then I would kind of, I'd wake up and my hands would be trying to get my feet out of the, the restraints, you know. And um, you know, and then Piffle would go, wake up, you know, and then I'd start rowing again, you know. And, and then you start having conversations with people that aren't in the boat and sort of, I, I wouldn't say that I had hallucinations as such, um, but you do like the, the splash coming up feels like hands coming into the boat. And, you know, you do, you talk, you just, you've got that. It's like when you fall asleep and you sometimes in that kind of weird half awake, half asleep kind of, you and your brain will have, you're almost dreaming, but not quite. Mm. It, it's that kind of state that you're in, you know. And Sorry. I have to say that I, I it's fascinating. I don't think we went quite, I didn't go quite as mad as I thought that I could go, you know, Pippa's husband said that he kind of, you know, he hallucinated a monkey being on the boat and stuff like that, you know, and we didn't didn't go quite that bad. And generally speaking, how, I mean, it, the two hours on, two hours off is horrific. The most horrific bit is that when the alarm goes 10 minutes before you have to be back on shift, you've had an hour and you've had 90 minutes sleep or whatever it is, you know, and, and you're like... God, and you have to take all your clothes off because you, you can't get damp because that's when you start getting skin conditions. So you put all your clothes back on, eat some food, go to the loo, get out in 10 minutes, you know, and get out on the shift again. Once you're on the oars, it's okay, mm. you know. So in those two hours, like every 40 minutes, you have a little mini break mm. and then you, you kind of get through it. You get through the two hours. Um, and then, but sometimes you mix up the, the regime so you can do an hour and a half on a half an hour off which is pretty brutal and it, and when one ocean so we got locked in this battle with one ocean crew mad and i went i went kind of i know that i am competitive i perhaps didn't realize how competitive i was until we did the atlantic i mean i was kind of slightly insane about it i was like we will win i loved that did they know they were racing uh, is this one of those things when you're racing someone they don't know you? No, they, so they knew. In fact, they made a video afterwards, and and um, was um, I've watched kind of not I haven't watched all the way through, but you can well, as the kind of race hots up, they start to talk about us. And at one point, they go, "The mothership are ahead of us," which is mortifying. I was like, "Come on, you know, we're not like." So basically, they underestimated us, you know. Oh yeah, first so, mistake. Yeah, but it's it's uh, it's got a sad ending. Um, so they were ahead for two weeks. We were ahead. We, then we overtook them just after Christmas, maintained our lead for three weeks. And then we had this incredibly stressful period where like 
for about three or four days, we were neck and neck. And then I'd be saying to my husband, and we couldn't, you know, there is a kind of weird form of broadband on the boat, but it's a right pain in the arse to use a box and to hold it up to the satellite. And, you know, that's what you're most likely to drop in the water. And it costs oh. about 3,000 kilos. Um, so, you know, that, 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 so you don't always, the easiest way to find out where you are is to phone somebody at home. So I'd constantly be phoning my husband, where are we? Where are we? You know, like every four hours you get an update, like, no, one mile ahead, you're one mile ahead, you know, they're three miles ahead, you're two miles ahead, you know, and we just kept kind of shifting. And, and then eventually they've just started to come and nip ahead. And, um, and we were like, we've got to change our, we've got to go three up. We've got to change our pattern, you know, which is what everyone does, but it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily rowing more efficiently. In fact, you're probably getting tireder. And then we had this, I was really in decline at that point. So I'd lost, I'd, I'd lo- I lost 20 kilos almost. And, um, wow. and I couldn't eat. I lost my, I lost my appetite. So I couldn't eat enough. And, um, and I was kind of a powerhouse. So that, that was kind of, it, that was a bit of a shame. Um, but one night we cut the shift down to one hour rest. It was 45 minutes. And, um, so, you know, five minutes or whatever, four times through the night. And the next morning, I, I just had, that was the worst day on the boat. And I just, I cried and I was hateful and I was horrible to my crew. And, you know, I thought they all hated me. And, you know, and and that was really difficult for me because I had been the one that had been pushing everybody all the way. And they dealt quite well with that 45 minute break and I couldn't deal with it. And I had to accept that I'd found my limits. Like I, I actually could not push myself beyond that point. I couldn't do it on no sleep. And for whatever reason, they could. Maybe they were better at napping during the day. And, you know, the, the sisters were better at napping during the day. But, you know, so then they were like, well, we'll, we'll let's get back to two hours on, two hours off. And we, we still kind of mixed it up a bit. But um, that last week, was difficult if I regret anything about the trip I regret how I was in that final week you know and I, I think I moved apart from the others in the boat slightly I couldn't I felt it very hard to deal with the fact that we weren't going to win the trophy and you know having pushed them so hard for, for that period of time and we kind of we came up with a sort of consolation for ourselves and we said you know we're going to arrive at Friday evening at sundown you know have cocktails whatever like we'll just and we did arrive at this most perfect moment you know it was absolutely beautiful the sun was going down on on Antigua and you know there were lots of people around it it was just this incredible feeling and of course the moment you get off the boat Mm -hmm. you you don't care about that element of the race anymore you know you don't I would have liked to have held up a thing saying we you know fastest female boat across the Atlantic this year or whatever it is you know but after that, that all of that kind of disappeared. Um, but when you're in the boat and you're living that race, you know, it just, just obsessed me, you know, which... You can make it your reason to keep going. You yeah. Know, hang your hat on it. And we talk about in rowing in general, you know, you know, people say, well, it's not the end of the world, you know, but this is my world. Yeah. Like, yeah, so yeah. it is, because right now this is my world. And in rowing, you know, we talk, we laugh. Pete used to have a hoodie when I first met him when he was 16 and came down to Leander, had this hoodie, and it said, rowing is life. <laughs> and I sort of found it quite funny because it was. And then you get a little bit past, and one of the things I tell people when they finish their career, you know, 
some advice and stuff and like you'll you'll get a little bit past this and you'll realize there's more to it but yeah yeah in that moment it's ever I know so you know it's hard to hard to explain that and I and I think one of the things that people say about one a lot what people had said to us before we left I think there'd been a lot of fallouts the year before and um people like you know make sure you stay friends and you know our coach was kind of like he said you've got to have a motto you know which was just like um stay safe stay strong stay friends you know which we did manage um you know we had a couple of kind of me and my, it was obviously me and my friend joe that up riled because we were close, more familiar to each other so we had that kind of rowing sibling kind of relationship anyway you know um and the siblings the two sisters didn't rile each other at all <laughs> That is quite impressive. Yeah. Maybe not in front of you, but yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, we, yeah, you know, I think that was really important to us that we didn't fall out. But going back to James Cratton and Ben Fogel, they're a classic example of people that didn't have the same approach to the race. Mm. So James Cratton obviously wanted to win. Ben Fogel just wanted to have a, a great experience crossing the Atlantic. And so you do sometimes get boats like that. And um, I mean, there was some, and there's all about someone was telling me about where they had a fallout in the middle of the ocean. And now it's, you know, two on one side, two on the other, and they just don't speak to each other. I haven't done it. I still can't imagine mm-hmm. what could possibly happen that you wouldn't speak to that person and you come back in. I was going to say, so for the two hours on and off, you're staying in the same double all the time. No, that, so you, 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 you're you have one hour with one person. Uh, okay, so like a road person. So it's kind of yeah, staggered between the two cabins. Okay, yeah. Which is good, so that works well. So you get you get someone fresh coming on for your second hour. Yeah. So and and then you and yeah, you have someone different to talk to. So the person you see less is your cabin mate because you never row with them. So uh, okay. So I just row So you see them on the change. Yeah, see them on change or if they're hanging around on deck, but but they are the person you see least. And then yeah, so and then how 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 are you spending your two hours off during the day and during that? Like that's always someone first because you can't. So they're saying, oh yeah, I, I get every four hours I get two hours sleep, but you can't really just no. sleep on every break. And like you said, you have to eat and shower and go to the loo and like all yeah. these other things. Like because it's so it's never two hours off. You off. never you never fall asleep exactly when you know your yeah. break starts and everything, and like you don't want to be late. Yeah, yeah, no showering. <laughs> For the, for the whole trip. Yeah. But we did have someone who's given us this kind of weird, you can do it like a rainwater shower or like, you get seawater and you put it in a black bag and it warms up. Yeah, a solar shower. Yeah, it was yeah. such a kind of kerfuffle. We didn't use it. No, I mean, you just have baby wipes. And yeah. uh, and so we, but because it... Shredded shower. We had, yeah, we had this sort of period of quite, um, we had, a, a, a you know, the most dangerous bit. We had four or five days, but it really got really wavy. And you do get drenched sometimes, you know, you get these enormous waves that will come over the side of the boat. But um, generally speaking, using the baby wipes was okay and that you weren't too salty or too kind of crusty. But that's, again, like this, because um, you can get, if you let the salt yeah, sit in yeah. your skin, it's, like a, it's almost like burns or... Uh, yeah. yeah. And what we didn't, so we didn't really suffer from that. So I, that was something I was really expecting yeah. that we didn't get. And actually, and I'd used this kind of amazing beeswax on my hands that, really tough on the locks. In fact, the blisters were okay as well. I didn't even get a burst blister, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And, but that is, you know, it's sort of, it is possible. Um, but yeah, so the breaks during the 
So our in the evening is literally come off in the night, come off, go to the loo, eat something, sleep for 90 minutes, get up, have 10 minutes to, you know, do the rest of it. In the day, so because I was doing the kind of social media and stuff, so I would I would write the social media posts, which if you read them on the mothership Instagram, you know, you can sort of track how my state of mind <laughs> Some go slightly bonkers, maybe, you know. Um, and I, I didn't I didn't write in I didn't write about one ocean crew and didn't write about the race because I didn't we didn't want to let a one ocean crew know we were we so you know that, that. that's exactly what I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of weird thing that like all of that was going on in our heads and yet I haven't written it down. Weirdly, when I tried to write a diary, like just on my notes on my phone just fall asleep every time so and it, the the thing i really recommend is that you should actually do a voice memo um and mm. record it uh, rather than try and write it down and like with the instagram posts because it was you know i'm a journalist and it's a deadline then i did it you know but i you, you kind of i didn't do any reading so and didn't listen to audiobooks either i mean i took a couple of books there's just no way i mean you just you you know would sit and chat um, sometimes you sit at the front of the boat and and just chat to each other. I mean, you know, I have to say, like, we laughed and laughed and laughed. You know, we, we just had some really, really amazing moments. And it is that kind of camaraderie of just being together and goes back to that kind of training camp mentality, you know, when it's just you and the boat and your crewmates. And, you know, it's just they, those kind of moments are sort of irreplaceable, you know, especially New Year's Eve. I mean, we just... I don't know why that kind of particularly sticks out, but we played one of our really stupid games, memory games, and it was just kind of, you know, it was hilarious. And we talked about a lot of people's love lives and, you know, divorces that people were going through and various midlife conversations mm. and kind of, you know, that. so there's a lot of that kind of going on at the same time. I would only say, like, maybe towards the end, when it got super hot, so it really heated up. And what we didn't have any problem, you know, power can be a problem if it's cloudy. So we had kind of glorious sunshine for most of the journey. Um, but when the stern cabin starts to heat up during the day, to, as you get closer to the Caribbean, like they would kind of have to, those, they'd have to come in so you'd get two people squashed in our cabin in the breaks in the middle of the day, which kind of got slightly insane, um, you know, and so that, that all got a bit crowded um i'd say that the so you're in terms of the kind of injuries on the boat it's really interesting how your body recovers and how you deal with that two hours rest period and actually you get to realize two hours on two hours off is actually quite nice you know that's actually a good balance and as soon as you cut down to two hours one hour that's when you sort of start to struggle um you know but you do three sets of 90 minutes sleep through the night will get you in a reasonable state for all four and a half hours sleep or whatever it is will get you in a reasonable state for the next day so you're doing that for five weeks yeah and you might have a little snooze like during the day you know but you just like i i love my bed i know the one thing that stays with me or every day when i get into bed i'm just like oh my bed i love my bed so much and that that really makes you appreciate the small things you know yeah i was going to say that but you know yeah it really, you know, that that sort of really does. But you do, you you just, 
push. It's not like I'm good at getting out of bed now. I still hate getting out of bed in the morning. But you, 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 you put, you go, you enter another level. You know, we're just capable of incredible things, and and you can do it. And and that's what's the amazing thing. You, you find this this total this other level that you didn't realize that you were capable of, that you didn't realize that your body would be capable of. And I was fifty, you know. And and I could do it and 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 do it well, you know, and that, that that's kind of pretty inspiring. It's funny how you have to go three thousand miles to really get to know the person that you could see in the mirror every day. Yeah, and that actually that was one of the things that really inspired me to do it because I who was I think it was might have been Jasmine Harrison, who's the youngest rower to woman female rower, I think she's twenty one, she did it the year before. She said when you arrive in Antigua, so the point about the Atlantic Road is when you wake up the next day after you, you know, you'll know absolutely who you are, you know, and and I think that is that that's true. I mean, there is no kind of there is no hiding place. No, you're kind of and you know, I I said to I said to my crewmates before we left that you know the others had done some sort of psychological survey and I was sort of too late to it, but I said I will shout at you. You know, I know that I'm not going to make it six weeks six weeks across the ocean and not shout at somebody. You know, and and I don't know what, and that to me shouldn't be viewed as a bad thing because how can you be at that point where you've pushed yourself so hard and not have a row, you know, or not not shout, you know, it would be and and hard to restrain yourself. Sure, and suppressing yourself might actually be like detrimental to your performance and mental health and like struggling or you know just finding that strength to go back for those two hours on back on the water. Yeah, and if you didn't have any of those things, you wouldn't be pushing. You wouldn't be. You wouldn't yeah. be putting yourself to your limit. And what's the point of doing it if you're not going to try? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny you said, oh, you weren't happy with how you were in the last week. Mm. That sort of thing, like, there, there's no, you, you can't practice being five weeks into a 3,000-mile row. Yeah. And even when you do start to see some bits that you don't like, or you said that you push yourself beyond your limit, I still also think, like, that's cool because now you now you can kind of look back and see the run into the limit. Yeah. Like, later in life, if you start to see that stress and that build up, you're like, oh, hang on. Yeah. I've been here before. And I think that as much as some people, I think a lot of people don't want to push the limit because they fear it's not as, they think, are very scared of like dropping out or failing or, or like, you know, throwing the towel in before they get to this place where they, they want to get. But I think, I think it's like a bit of a superpower, you yeah. know, to find it wherever it is and then know where it is. Yeah. Because a lot of people have no idea and then they'll just drop off the end at some other random point in life when things get tough and you don't have any like for you I gotta say this for me with rowing like had any children yet and I'm sure that that's going to be difficult but post rowing career I haven't really found I've had some tough times but I haven't really found anything that's as tough as rowing and it's kind right. of like this is hard but it's not like Jesus back in the middle of it rowing yeah and like for you like times by 10 you but- must hit tough times in your life and be like yeah but I'm not yeah, and uh, we talked about this on the boat quite a lot, actually, whether it would make us intolerant of other people's struggles. <laughs> and we, we decided that, yes, it would make us intolerant of other people's struggles. You know, it is, and sometimes it's, sometimes in a frustrating way, because sometimes I, you know, might look at people and, and I just think, I know that you're capable of more and you're not, you don't even have an inkling of what you're capable of because you're not pushing yourself, you know, but. And I will say no, maybe that I'm addicted to achievements or achieving things or pushing myself or not everyone is like that, not everyone has to do that, you know. 
So, yeah, it's 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 difficult in that way, isn't it? When we are on rowers are a, a weird species, you know. But you spend a lot of time as a rower with people who are having exactly the same mindset, and then it becomes mm-hmm. difficult to understand why anyone else wouldn't want to push the limits. Yeah, because you're yeah, used yeah. to being in that environment. But yeah, it's people are different. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm a boss, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, and that that. Sometimes I have to temper my kind of, you know, why can't you stay 12 hours a day, you know, like your work isn't done, you're staying, finish it, you know, even though like before, you know, I've always been a believer in a work-life balance, but sometimes I'm just like, you're doing this job and and surely you want to do it to the absolute best of your ability, you know, and that's kind of sometimes it can get a bit tricky, I think. Yeah, I mean, I specifically, um, one of the last podcasts we were talking about, but I, I... the weirdest mindset that I think is is the people who are like half like really in but halfway mm. like they'll turn up for every session they're never late even yeah. when it's raining but then in the boat they're just like not really present or like yeah. not giving it everything and you're like you, you you're there like you're there you just need to take that one step further. I can understand some people like, I don't want to do that I'm not going to get up but those people are kind of like nearly there but don't don't quite go the extra step I think it could like lead to what you said about like people being like fearful of being able to find their limit. But what they actually might realize, you talk about this quite a lot, is that you know if your limit is at a hundred percent, how long can you sit at ninety percent for, and just keep it and just keep yourself there? Because that might also be quite like useful to know about yourself, especially when you find yourself like five six weeks away from coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sitting. Yeah, where is where where's the point that you can you know stay at without? going mental mm. yeah. yeah and that 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 that's really and you're right kind of that thing about you see the warning signs and you like basically like you they you see when you're about to break down you know and that that that's kind of quite important one of the very unique things about the atlantic road i would say is that you can't get off yeah so so you know you have to okay like in the past a couple of people you know if someone's had really debil- debilitating seasickness i mean there's this terrible this story about I think it was an American boat and they they were like we're going to transform ocean rowing and we're going to be the best ever you know and then one of the crewmates and they were in a Rannoch foot four and one of the one of the guys he he got debilitating seasickness that so he absolutely couldn't carry on so they had to get do they had to rescue him and then um, when he was being rescued one of the other guys in the boat just said well we're not going to break the record now so I'm going to get off as well. And um, and and he just and they left the other two to, oh. to do the row, you know. So in a four, you know, in a big heavy boat. So that that's a, you know, then the other two just carried on, you know. But they had no choice because you know they've got this boat, it's expensive, you know. But that that's a kind of, you know. Yeah, that's so for me. That's sort of giving up. Like for me, I think like that's like we said, like knowing that something's going to go wrong. Like that's when you find out what you're made of. Yeah, I was talking to someone today earlier about, um, you know, everyone thinks that being a champion is is winning and being and doing, you know, and perfect performance and all the rest of it. But I think actually, like, any it's it's easy when it's going easy. Anyone can row hard when they feel great, and anyone can sort of like be excited and motivated with a gold medal around their neck. But like, what what when it all goes wrong? Yeah, yeah. what when some guy gets taken off and. Your whole aim for this entire trip is is down the pan. Well, but then, but then, what do you do then? And I think yeah. that's the point that separates someone someone who can be successful from someone who 
did not yeah. fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think those guys have a really interesting story to, to tell, basically. Yeah, the two that kept going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said, talk about knowing where you are yeah. at the end of the trip. I think you really find out yeah. where you are when two yeah. of you guys jump off. I was The thing that really would scare me about doing it is um so the boats are incredibly expensive right yeah when they're brand new like 80 maybe 100,000 pounds for equipment so a lot of people as far as I'm aware to buy a second-hand boat most people probably take a loan out or savings or whatever and then when you finish you then sell it on to the next people yeah Yeah, some of your money but if you get to the point where you're struggling and you need saving yeah you've got to wait for this boat to turn up that's 200 miles away and when it eventually turns up it just saves you yeah yeah, so yeah you that's right. and who you're with get off the boat and you push 80 grand off into the middle of the atlantic and yeah. hope that at some point in the future it lands in somewhere near antigua and you can pick it up again yeah i would struggle with the fact that if i i feel like you i would be like i want to win this or i've got some target some speed i want to do it if I got into a situation where I need, where I was supposed to get off for a safety reason, but the fear, the thought of like losing eighty grand would probably would make me maybe stay on the boat longer than I should, and then potentially risk, yeah, you know, dying or something bad happening. Yeah, I mean that that it's it's quite interesting, and we, I think when I when we were in training like and i hadn't really had this discussion about what happens if you lose the boat in the in the middle of the ocean and um and they kind of said oh we would have to pay for it you know ours was a little bit less dangerous maybe it was you know because it would like fist hand or something yeah, I mean, we were, yeah you know we were going through but still that would have been you know a good sort of eight grand or something each you know it's amazing uh how little it happens actually so um i think i mean so that rescue you know so it's amazing how how so in a non-emergency and that i mean it's really rare for a person to be picked up um you know and they tell you to stay on the boat for as long as you possibly can um what amazes me really is that people get don't really get injured that much you know and and you, you you kind of cycle through your injuries so you have periods of pain but you'll just feel this you know, you might, I, my ribs really hurt for a while and then they stopped hurting. My friend's neck really hurt for a while and then it stopped hurting, you know, and you just, it's the adrenaline and the ibuprofen and, I guess, you know, you kind of, so it, it would take quite a lot to make you get off that. Boat, yeah, I guess because the challenge also is, is just keeping going. It's not, it's not like I, it's like you can do a marathon in your own time. Yeah. So, you know, uh, when, when your knee starts to hurt, you go a bit slow for a little bit. Yeah, so it's like a different kind of challenge in terms of, Unless you're doing like the cracknell thing and just running yourself absolutely into the ground, yeah. To try and get there. I was going to say, like, what, ha- like, have the, have the, has there been a situation where, like, you needed to take a day off or two, for example, because of like pain or sickness or anything like this, and like your crewmates had to cover for you, or there's no mercy? Uh, no mercy on our boat. Um, so no, I don't think anyone missed. Just I think, oh well, possibly there was one shift. Well, I don't know. I don't think anyone missed a shift. I think, like, occasionally, like, we might have rowed a bit more for to like give someone an extra twenty minutes, but sure. like almost never. We basically did every single shift that we were supposed to do. And there was one night where, so that period of kind of really bad weather, there was one night where it was really crazy, and you know, the night where we probably came closest to capsizing or pitch poling, the only night that we put our life jackets on. And um, and we put our oars up 
um, because we decided that it's actually more dangerous rowing, um, so more at risk of capsizing, and and you know we're going incredibly fast anyway. Um, but your body starts to stiffen up. So so you know, and I read like one of the there was a female fall this year that had done it, and they had a night off, and I, and I was just like, what are you doing? You know, like don't give yourself a night off because you'll feel worse. You know, and and as soon as you get out of that rhythm, you start to feel really bad. In fact, the worst I felt was the forty-eight hours, the first forty-eight hours in Antigua. I mean, I felt terrible. You know, um, I think we'd been going another week. I would have started to be in real trouble because I think was losing so much weight. You know, yeah. like so, I came off in Antigua, and you know, your back seizes up, and then I nearly fainted the next day. And you, you know, you kind of, but any sort of. I think any sort of break really it affects everyone else. They get tireder, you know. So as much as possible, you have to kind of keep to your keep to your ship pattern and, and not have. Break. Yeah, and then you want to do it again once you've already had that break once. Then it's like easier yeah. to take it again. Yeah, yeah, and you start flipping. Like you say never never stop on a on a row machine test. Like once you've stopped one, yeah. and psychologically it becomes easier. Um, I remember when finding out back in the Tour de France. So they it's a twenty one day race, obviously, but they have two rest days. But on that rest day, they'll go and ride like forty miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? Like you're absolutely destroying yourself. But on your rest day, you'll ride same same process. Um, and then also a similar thing from rowing would be we always get warned like coming into um. It's like a world championships, you would obviously start to taper off and train down. Yeah. That'd be a really common time to pick up illnesses because when you're in a really high training volume, your body's kind of almost in like fight mode yeah. and it's working really hard to like yeah. do everything that's required of it. And then if you take that away from it, it's like, oh, I can relax now and I'll get ill or yeah, like, yeah, the niggles and stuff might come out. So, yeah, like you said, that two hour on, two hour off, it's just you get that routine, the body's just like, okay, yeah, we're in now. Yeah, and you, you do, you, you make the switch and, and you know, when I came off, when we came off and we arrived in Antigua, I mean, they do say like, they say either you will sleep 12 hours or you will get up and sleep on the floor. And, you know, anyway, that obviously I fell into the latter camp. I just couldn't sleep. The bed was the most uncomfortable thing that I felt that I'd ever slept in. You know, I ended up sleeping on the floor, ended up doing Pilates in the middle of the night, you know. And and eating and my husband oh my husband having a fridge of watermelon and I was like oh there's no food you know and um you just I like, wanted sugar every two hours you yeah. know so that, and it takes like and you you obviously got lamb sickness as well I was going to say what's the lamb legs like yeah awful and that was what I was worried about but they would carry on it's like you can you know people like it's a condition that kind of affects you for a long time that you never get your you never get your lamb legs properly back but. I mean, we had this sort of weird Airbnb for the first couple of nights. Was on stilts, and I, honestly, it just like felt like the whole thing was moving, and the staircase was moving, you know. And that was so they say don't fly for the first five days or something like that. Basically, you need five days. It was like the Thursday next week. I think that that kind of first started to yeah. feel more normal. Could hardly eat a full plate of food, you know. It's that bit I, at coming out sort of prison camp type thing. Yeah, the stomach had shrunk so much. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to ask you about. Like, obviously, with losing twenty kg and like the space of six weeks, and like progressively like going down in weight. Like, what sort of food did you eat? How did you how did you maintain your nutrition? What were like some of the do's and don'ts? And like, also like, what did you have access to? Like, because you obviously had power, but like, were you eating like I don't know astronauts? They have like tube food, like you know, some smoothies, or like did you have access to like a microwave or something? 
No. So, um, well, weirdly, that, that shot of Deborah Searle that I saw where they had the Shepherd's cooking pot. So, so, we didn't, so you have a jet boil, um, which is your fast your gas canister with a fast boiling water kettle on top. Mm-hmm. Um, and then freeze-dried food, various different makes, you know, adventure food type stuff. And then snack packs and and then breakfast, so porridge or muesli. Um, so we're already with milk powder in them, so you could just add water to sure. the hot water. So and you take two thermos flasks. So it did did this job. Um, she had this massive black blood. She looked like um, um whatever's there was once white and <laughs> it was not really Breaking Bad at like seven o'clock in the morning on the boat. Like did forget her gloves on. And she would boil up all the water for the for the day. I mean, it was a really like that was she was she was like the mama of the boat, um, even though we were all mums. Um, and then that that hot water would kind of last through the day, and you would eat, you know, you have your sachets of food. You know, I was really looking forward to eating like a pig, eating all of this nice food. You know, I never have a problem eating, and I just I didn't like I you know I I. I became that typical person who's like, I'll only have the spike bowl, you know, I'll only have the chicken cooler. You know, I started being really picky. Uh, and then I had a, one chicken cooler that was off, so then I couldn't have the chicken cooler anymore, oh. you know. And then, and so, you know, some food that tastes nice to you on land would start to, you know, I I became obsessed with peach slices. So we had some peach slices. I'm still obsessed with peach slices. <laughs> Because they're the most delicious things in the world, so to me, because that was kind of a bit of freshness. We took some oranges, but then you have these snack packs. So alongside all of that, that those are your main meals. You have snack packs, but I would say we didn't do our snack packs well. So we we had too many biscuits and we took massive things of peanut butter, Nutella, whatever. But then we got this dry mouth and then couldn't eat them. Mm-hmm. It's like the, doing the cream cracker challenge, you know. Like, you know, and what we didn't have was criminally was Haribo and um Dolly Mixture I had like I had some Dolly Mixture in some of my snack packs every day I would say to Pippa who'd done snack packs where are my Dolly Mixtures and um you know and if I got some Dolly Mixture I would eat it in about 10 seconds but you know we did have so that we could have done with a lot more Haribo because if you're losing your appetite then you just want high you know sort of high calorie but easy to eat sure so nuts so no one else, i we had lots of nuts no one else ate yeah nuts i ate all the nuts it probably kept me going and we had this um kendall mint cake but with a slightly more scientific version of kendall mint cake but that also was that was like gold dust i mean that was i i don't think we can manage it without the kendall mint cake mm-hmm. so i think like anyone i would just say make sure you have loads of haribo on board do you, yeah. do you know what kind of calories you were trying to go for per day? Yeah, it was, um, I read it again yesterday. It was, um, I can't remember what the amount per kilo is, but I, I had to eat about between 5,000 and 6,000 calories a day. Wow. I manifestly did not manage. Wow. Um, so, what you're wearing for 12 hours a day. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a cabochon diet, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, my, so my real problem was that I could get halfway through the meal, but then my, my, like, you know, my body would just no, no more, and it would be like forcing it down. But yeah. There's only a certain extent that you can force it down. Before know, it just, comes back. Yeah, you're just like, yeah, otherwise you'd be sick. So, you know, and eventually, like, 
well, my crewmates could obviously see that I was losing weight and, you know, everything was falling off me. And um, I kept falling over. That was like the sort of worst thing in the last two weeks that I kept falling off. And we, me and our other girl were rowing in socks, seal skins, and mm-hmm. the other two were rowing in trainers. And I sort of realised on the kind of last week or on the last day when I put my trainers on before we arrived that actually that was kind of because the foot straps had become so stiff. I should have put my trainers on. That would have made me more stable. Oh, okay. But I kept, like, with the waves and stuff, I kept, like, being knocked off my seat. And I probably had the worst bum sores of anybody. For whatever reason, I don't know why. But, you know, you have the, the rowing, ocean rowing boat seats are the most uncomfortable seats you could ever sit on. And you, you layer them up with whatever. Foam. You know, that. foam and gel seats and sheepskins yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but after a while, you can't. You know, you're, you you so there's this thing called ocean rowing bum, <laughs> where you lose all your muscle in the glutes. So um, you know, even usually you, you come off with like quite you defined quads, arms. Like if you look at a picture of me, you know, like my arms are really muscular, and my quads are okay. You've got non-existent calf muscles. Yeah, <laughs> like every rower. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just can't walk. And then your but your glutes disappear as well, and so your bum just sags, and then you've got these two kind of sores on your butt, basically. As in you're like sitting on your bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just sitting on the bone, yeah. you know. And and that was, and we'd have this terrible pseudocrine disaster where we'd taken the wrong pseudocrine allergies. Oh, no. So we were basically lacking the one thing that we really needed on the boat. It was pseudocrine. I was going to say like I didn't marathon on the rowing machine once and like the only times i've had this stop was to put more padding on the seat i can't imagine what that must have been like on the boat that that is yeah but it's really and it it just gets even the kind of gel seats they start to wear down so like everything where your bones are just like everything gets thinner so that it's really hard to kind of but then the more you kind of prop yourself up more likely you are to fall off so you know it's a trade yeah 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 and then really that kind of, yeah, that sort of part of the course. Yeah. And in terms of like vitamins and stuff, like did you take any like pouches full of like, you know, multivitamin, et cetera. And also like, since you're so exposed to sun rays out in the ocean, like did you basically just have to like cover yourself in sunscreen all the time? Yeah. So I took, I think I had kind of Barocca type um, multivitamins and then I had electrolytes and our, that's our Kendall mint cake was a sort of special thing with electrolytes. The gold dust. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know what kind of mint cake is. No, 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 it's more a British thing. No, but uh, I'll look it up after the show. Before, yeah. before nutritional science was a thing, the uh, sort of a- active person's way to replenish themselves was. Do I guess it's sort of like a large version of like an after eight mint? It's like a minty chocolate, gooey. Where do I buy this? It doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really seem like it would be like nutritionally great, but it was just like the thing of walkers and mountain climbers and stuff. I mean, I love after it, so if it's like it's a big, tasty, oh, it's, it's all sugar. Yeah, they took it to Everest, I think, that's it. Hindley is the kind of, they ate it on top of Mount Everest or something, you know, so it's kind yeah. of, you know, mythical, mythical substance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some, so, I mean, you, you have so much stuff to get on the boat. When you're in Lagomera, when you do this kind of, you do kit, you're doing all this kit kind of, you know, you lay everything out. They have to come and check your kit and the safety inspections and all the rest of it. And, you know, your plan B to everything and your, your kit, your grab bag in case of emergency. And then all of this food stuff has to go out. 
Um, but then sunscreen as well. So um, yeah, kind of factor 50 and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I religiously looked after my skin. So, you know, I have, I've got hat, I had hats with the bits down the side, you know, the foreign legion type hat. I was always wearing a t-shirt um legs like you, you pretty quickly stop wearing anything on your legs because you don't want any tight lycra because that kind of clings to you it will rub as well yeah yeah i had this kind of amazing which i nearly didn't take it was just we were sponsored by sweaty betty and um, and we got these yoga trousers baggy yoga trousers i mean they were invaluable so in the it, it, bit cold in the nights to begin with i would go out and then um so yeah and just cover yourself with sunscreen I have to say that my crewmates rode um, without any clothes on and um, barely with any. I mean, they did put sunscreen on, but they really topped up their tans. And if you look at our finishing photo, they are brown and I am gleaming white. <laughs> <laughs> my sister was like, what the hell have you been doing? <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice at the time, but maybe yeah, in the future, it might not be as happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, I was watching some of the videos last night. It's a little video of me going, yeah, they've got nice tans, but at what cost? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what was I going to ask? Um, I was going to ask you about um, navigation as well, because like, I know there's like really strong currents on the Atlantic, and like, in case you do abandon your boat, then you just have to hope that it like lands somewhere in Antigua. But like, was it how much like was that on your mind? Was it difficult and like? Possibly, if you wanted to, could you row all the way to New York instead, like alter the course that much, or was it like pretty much anything you did would get you to your destination? Like, I don't really know how like navigation yeah, on the ocean works. No, it's a good question. Just about about the abandoning your boat thing. Um, the just so it is really rare that people um, either go, you know, get rescued and have to abandon boat. I think that last year there were. So two solo rowers, or there was a solo rower that was rescued, but they did manage to they they managed to lift her boat up onto the tanker. So her boat was rescued. So last year there was an American vet's fall in the Talisker who capsized, did not self-right, um, had to get my exact fear, my awful fear of everything, everything that I could possibly have dreaded happened to them. So they ended up in the life raft. Um they got detached, uh, the life raft got detached from the main boat. Um, so then that the boat has just, you know, disappeared. And that all their equipment got wet as they got into the life raft. So they couldn't phone anyone. They'd, mm -hmm. they'd set off their EPIRB, but the Cape Verde Islands ignored their emergency signal. So no one knew that they were um, in a life raft. All they had was the short radio to try and attract, a, mm -hmm. you know, phone people. So they were constantly just radioing, radioing, radioing. Eventually, they got hold of a tanker, Dutch tanker that was four hours away, that managed to get to them. You have your own personal EPIRB as well. Um, so they found them That's and like they a, rescued them, like the beacon. Like yeah, and um, yeah, they they were. I think there was maybe something like eighteen hours in the life raft, and they went afterwards. They said that our life raft, which okay, this is no one else's their own, because you have to be responsible for your own life raft. They said that they found that their life raft was only supposed to be for sort of four hours at sea. It was something like that. I mean, that's not a very good life raft, you know. And right. then then they had to get up onto the tanker. But there, you know, that so that that's one boat that that is floating around the ocean. I think a few years ago, some other people had to be rescued and they, one of the things you learn in your safety happening beforehand. So those people apparently said, 
they were absolutely convinced that their boat had sunk. And like the boat manufacturers were like, well, I, you know, I'm sure the boat hasn't sunk. You know, we just got separated from it and they were in a life raft that they also got separated. And they said that we just saw it disappear behind the waves. Anyway, the boat did eventually wash up somewhere in the Caribbean and was refurbished and is still being used, I think. So, you know. I feel like that's a bad omen. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it in that one. <laughs> Although maybe yeah, like, lightning doesn't strike twice, I guess. Yeah, but those, you know, so, so that, you know, I, I became, when I came home, uh, I came, I have not read any of this before I left. I became obsessed with reading all the worst terrible stories about, oh, you know, how people had died and all the rest of it, you know. Um, and when are you doing it again? <laughs> <laughs> now I've forgotten the second half of your question. It was it was about navigation. Okay. And like, how easy was it to steer, alter the course? Or like, how much was that on your mind? And could you end up in New York if you wanted to? Yeah, and so navigation was sort of probably one of the things we, that caused some stress on the boat. So you have a weather router. And this is how, you know, it's become more competitive. I didn't think people used to have weather routers in the old days. Um, but so you have someone on land who will study the weather and tell you where to go. Um, and then you're kind of, you basically have a decision either to go head really far south and, and then turn towards Antigua and, and try and get the better trade winds that are, are there. Um, or you kind of go on the rum line, which is the shortest distance to Antigua. Um, we had, um, we were all specifically told not to go north not to take the northern line because of the weather conditions that were coming in so that we all had to kind of press quite far south. Okay. But from some kind of those decisions, you have to sort of make, um, everyone kind of makes their own choices um, and and with the 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 weather router. So you have your auto helm, you've got, you've got your navigation system. So you'll put in your um, waypoint. So if you're going south, you might put in your first waypoint and, and the boat will take you down there. The auto helm will kind of, you know, move. So you'll put 240 or whatever it is, you know, and um, when you put your compass point in and then and then you can kind of, you, there's a button which will shift you within a few degrees of that. And sometimes it would be amazing how even just shifting it a little bit would make the water dip more difficult, make the water be more concretey, less concretey. Wow, okay. And um, so you kind of, you know, have to kind of try and find that sort of balance. I think the biggest cause of arguments on the boat was do we kind of follow the you know shortest line or do we go with the wind mm. and and then so that that's that's what kind of you know because you know if you go with the wind that you're rowing more miles but but that you may be quicker yeah you know. did you decide um, that before or after what well, no just all just all in the middle of the row you know like depending on conditions yeah one of the things that happens if you if you if you try and kind of you know, go with the shortest line. Um, so some of the wind, you know, the wind can take you down and then you'll be going with the waves and it'll be nice and eventually, you know, you hope that the, the you know, cats, the trade winds and, you know, the, the current and the wind are supposed to take you direct into the Caribbean. Sure. You know, that's the, that's the kind of idea um, that if you sit in the boat and didn't row, like eventually you might arrive in the Caribbean, you know. Could you end up in Brazil? Possibly, yeah. You could possibly, you'd be unlikely to end up in New York. You might kind of get Pushed further down. Okay. Um, this year's race, they got really pushed down quite far. What happened with the crew that capsized is that they then tried to kind of come around and cut the corner. But what happens is that, you know, if you're rowing on top of the waves, so, it, you know, the waves kind of coming along and, and you're rowing kind of essentially on top of the wave, 
much more likely to capsize because it's much more likely to kind of push you over rather than if you're perpendicular to the way that makes sense. Um, so, you know, and sometimes it's just, it's dangerous, it's difficult rowing and you just, you just have to accept sometimes that you just have to go a little bit further south. What we found is that we, when we were south, we stayed, we were south for a long time and that was when we got the advantage of one ocean crew. They'd taken a slightly shorter line. At some point we swapped places. We went further north and they, they came further south and that was when we started to lose to them. Uh. Um, and if you look at our kind of, you, you can see a printout of our course, we sort of go along and then there's this, whoop, this funny kind of blip where we've gone too far north. Um, and that was partially because we thought a big storm was going to come in and so weather routes thought we were the storm was going to come in and that if we went we pushed slightly north the storm wouldn't push us so far south um as it was the storm wasn't quite as you know violent as as expected sure. so we'd kind of gone too far north unnecessarily and I think we probably you know given that we lost like by five hours or something you <laughs> that probably you can see I don't like looking at the whole route of our journey but yeah I can, I can, it reminds I can, you. I can, you know, it reminds me of where we kind of made our mistake, you know. Um, but that's one of those things where it's, um, there's no one right answer. Yeah. So this, that, that's kind of a thing where it's a constant source of potential problems because you can kind of make a case for each, each way. It is. It's really, you know, that it is really difficult. And, and I think part of the, you know, one of the conflicts perhaps with having a weather router or not, you know, the weather routers on land and they can, you know, they can see what's happening and they'll give their best advice, but they're not in the boat and they don't know what the conditions of the waves and the and the water is. Sometimes you inevitably have to kind of take that decision. You know, you can't just point your boat at Antigua and go, right, we're going to go that direction. Or, though, you know, some people do decide to do it that way. But I think, you know, generally, if you go with the wind, then, you know, eventually you, you'll come out. I mean, for anyone doing it, yeah, I would say the best advice is whatever direction, if you go far south or whatever direction you come out of Lagomera, to try and get out of Lagomera as quickly as possible. So if you look at this year's race, the, the front runners, all the people that got out quickly then missed this really bad weather front that came in. And so they, you know, they kind of capitalized on that early fast start and then they they were off and they, they didn't really have the same kind mm -hmm. of problems. Anyone that got stuck and this said so pairs, pairs have a problem. Solos can have real problems right at the start of the race. So pairs and solos much more likely to go on power anchor, perhaps a little bit more likely to capsize. You know, so all of those things, like yeah. if you're going to really push yourself to the max, you try and push yourself to the max in the first week because it will kind of bring you dividends later on in the race. Sure, sure, sure. So like to my understanding, then the navigation is like semi-automatic, like the boat kind of helps you. It's not like for two weeks and you just have to go out on stroke side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not, I mean, you, can, yeah, you, you're, you, you just, you're putting in the, and I'm not, I wasn't the navigator. So, um, you know, and I never really got a chance to kind of work out how the navigation system went, but, and the auto helm is like, it's the noisiest things. People in that stern cabin, like have this awful creaking of the auto helm as well all the time. But yeah, you can, you know, you're on deck and you can alter it slightly, but it's, and then you'll just put in a new kind of waypoint or, mm -hmm. you know, new direction. So it's, I'd say, you know, navigation's actually not the hardest aspect of going across the Atlantic. I mean, you, you know, you're going one direction and there aren't many things to hit. Um, as 
uh, you know, compared to rowing around Great Britain, which personally I think would be quite a miserable experience. We're I don't gonna, think I would ever do it. We're going to have to ask Alex Gregory about that one when we get him on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to the the great GB row or whatever it's called, you know, I think this year's row, row whoever did it this year, had a slightly less um, dramatic time, but but the the previous that there's been a lot of them, the people got rescued three yeah. times yeah. and wow. is that Alex Gregory? I think yeah, they didn't complete it. Yeah, yeah. So, but but it's you know it's easier that the the main differences between those two races is um, the Atlantic. You know you can't stop it. You're in the middle. Of, you have to. You, you, you except in extreme circumstances, you can't get off. You know you are there and you're committed and you and, and you have to finish with the GP row. Obviously, that you can always be rescued. You know pretty easily, and so you don't have that kind of fear. Yeah. However, you do have large land mass and lots of boats in your way um, and a tide. Yeah. So you know. And he, God, I mean, some of our training rows when we were rowing against the tide, I mean, it is back-breaking and you go about, you know, half a mile and God knows how long, you know, like hours, you know. I remember going along with a pier and a beach sort of just south of Plymouth and just you just rowing what seemed like hours and we could still see the pier, you know, oh, no. it just hadn't disappeared, you know. Oh, no. And it's just so that that is the really complex thing about that race, you know. Which is why they call it the world's toughest row. Oh, <laughs> Competition nice. over the world's toughest row. For different reasons. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask, so when you finished having lost 20 kilos, presumably at that point you're dangerously uh, underweight or, or sort of well, coming to it? Yeah, I was, so I was 76 kilos before I left. So, and I mean, I'm 70 now. You know, I would say that I tried to put on a little bit mm. of weight. You know, I'd like... To eat the hot, you know, drink lots of extra hot chocolates before I left. Mm, good. Um, yeah, <laughs> secret weapon. But the, these days they don't tell you to put on. To, in the old days, people like it'd be like kind of swimming the channel kind of yeah. thing, you know, really layer up. But now it's all about you've got to have the least weight possible. There is a kind of you know they don't tell you to kind of really nard up essentially before you go. Um, but probably could have done with putting on a little bit more weight. Uh, and then when I was, so, you know, there's a sort of way in, so 76 before I left and I was um, 58.9, I think. So not quite 20, but almost when I landed in Antigua and did the way in, then I was dehydrated. Big so, difference there. You know, but it's, um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a huge amount, I think. And I think it would have, it would have caused problems. And I mean, I just, I didn't look healthy, you know. I looked in the mirror that evening and I remember just thinking, God, you know, and that's why I say, like, I would have been in real trouble if we'd been out for a week later, not used to eat so well out on our main packets of food as well. <laughs> it was like right to the wire, which I don't really know why. If we'd been out there for another five days, we would have been just eating chocolate bars and nuts and stuff like that and no, no main biscuits. All the biscuits yeah, that no one wanted to that, eat. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you do chuck stuff overboard as you go that you're not eating, not in its wrappers. Um, so putting that weight back on again, was, did you have any sort of plan or was it just easy, just get back into routine, get um, some food in you? I had, I did have a bit of a, what I wanted to do was sort of put weight on sensibly, but, yeah. but also put the muscle back on. So I sort of did EMS training, which is, I don't know if you've ever done it, it's this sort of weird training where you, you kind of wear electric sort of 
things. You get electric stimulation. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do like 20 minutes and sort of an hour in the gym, but it'd be quite quite good. I did it before I left because I kind of wanted to build my strength up kind of quite quickly. Um, but it's quite good if you've had an injury or things like, you know, I had no glutes or carbs left. It was good at sort of specifically targeting that area. So I wanted to kind of put weight on, um, but make sure that I was building out the muscle at the same time rather than just coming back. And, you know, I, I think some people lose a lot of weight and then come back and then just kind of do it. It's like the one benefit. But yeah, 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 the sort of classic, you kind of pile on loads of weight immediately. Um, so I, but I, like there's two weeks, Week in Antigua, I could hardly eat. Um, took quite a long time to kind of get back to to sort of normal eating, get my kind of body back to to normal state. I remember I, the the thing I noticed most is that I was so cold all the times. So I got back to England in February, having lost all that body fat. Yeah. But it was because I'd lost it so quickly. You know, like everything's just kind of you know sagging and not nice you know yeah, normally you don't notice you yeah yeah yeah, it, yeah. gradual yeah. weight loss but it was like someone had deflated me how were the how are your other crew members did everyone lose obviously they, yeah they lost weight but not nearly as bad as me i don't think i didn't yeah i'm not quite sure kind of why um i mean they were smaller so the two sisters kind of quite small and lean anyway they didn't have such a huge amount of calories to eat um, but yeah, everyone lost weight, but I'm, I was the most definitely the most dramatic weight loss of all of them. Yeah, I wanted to ask. So, like, finally seeing that coast of Antigua, mm. and finally docking, like, were you, you you must have been relieved? Like, what was that like? Or did you think, oh no, my mind's playing tricks on me? I'm hallucinating. Like, we're not we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, apart from also again, even on that last day, being in a bit of a weird mood. Um, yeah, I kind of, I, I regret one thing. So we saw the first kind of sight of land, which was, you know, quite exciting. And then, um, and I got really grumpy and went into the cabin for two hours. And then when I came out again, like we were always, the, the island was always there. I definitely regret that because I, I don't I mean, what I was thinking. when obviously we were kind of packing and doing kind of last minute yeah. bits and bobs and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that was quite, it, it was, it was sort of, surreal but you, you kind of you know the the people that the safety officers and stuff will tell you for the last few days like enjoy it make the most of it you may never be in an ocean rowing boat again you know but at the same time you you can't you're like oh i'm done with this i need to be in you know like i can't wait to see my family yeah, yeah, you know yeah. so you have these kind of really conflicting emotions um and then yeah, then there's this kind of, it, is, it feels surreal to kind of see the land. I mean, it's there for quite a long time, but like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, you don't, couldn't see it for hours and then suddenly it's there and then you get closer and closer and then you're sort of rowing along the coast and then come, coming into English Harbour. You have to sort of make quite a sharp turn, but, you know, as the sun was coming down and then as we turned in, it was sort of dark. My family said, you could have been 15 minutes earlier. <laughs> seen you turn the corner. Um, but it was great because you come in and then the lights are all up on the boats and it's I, I think nighttime in my opinion is much nicer time to arrive than I mean sunset is perfect but you know just after sunset is great better than the day um, just because it just feels magical and sure. um, and then you so you, you come in and then well, we didn't we didn't really know we'd cross the finishing line it was such a heavy it was such a strong headwind we could hardly row 
was bizarre. And it was like that was the hardest rowing of the kind of whole bit. And it was like then like you were you're over the line, you're over the line, and um, and then you stop, and it kind of you know it's sort of this sort of weird thing. And then then you get your flares out. You're on the boat, and the media boat kind of comes round to you, and mm-hmm. they sort of film things and take lots of pictures. And then you get your flare out. And then you have this sort of irrational fear that your flares are not going to go off and it's going to look really crap, you know, and there's going to be the other three all have their flares up and you'll be like, oh, I haven't got my flare. Anyway, we did lunch to do the flares perfectly. And the flare is kind of like, that's that sort of, you can't wait for that moment when you've arrived and, and you've set your flares off and, and that looks brilliant in the nighttime photos and you could give everyone a hug and stop rowing about whether we're going to wear trainers in the in the final for the you know arrival interview or not which was one of the discussions that we had at length on the, on the final day <laughs> which just seems ridiculous you know sure. and you get your outfit on you have we had a special arrival outfit so we put that on um and the others like shaved their legs and their armpits i think um <laughs> <laughs> um and then, yeah, you, so you do the flares and then you, and then you kind of, there's a, you have to row very gently into English Harbour. And because it was Friday night, there's sort of restaurants were open and there's one restaurant played, we are the champions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It was amazing. You know, that is the kind of, you know, you just kind of want to cry when you, when, when that happens, you know, and then you come in and the dock and then, Carsten is the guy that owns the the whole thing. Um, you get out of the boat, and um, actually we've got a really fantastic picture of us getting out of the boat. So we were kind of in sync getting out of the boat, and then just that feeling of stepping on dry land is is so weird because your your legs are so wobbly and you can hardly stand up. And um, again, then you do your interviews and you know have a big hug and then meet your family and then you get this view in English Harbour, which is so beautiful and. Mm. And you get your your first meal of burgers and chips and a beer, um, you know. And then and how's, we, how's how does like food taste and beer and yeah, I, yeah. People say, oh, it's a bit disappointing having the burger. I actually really enjoyed my burger and oh, I do yeah. it my beer. Um, but then after that, of not long, you know, it took two hours to to start seizing up. And then we went back to the went back to the Airbnb and just kind of you know. That's it. Like, Telling my family kind of everything that had happened, and um, it, yeah, it's kind of. I didn't actually cry. Um, my daughter cried, and then you know, I didn't cry. <laughs> I don't know what it says about me. But I just that cr- dehydrated. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't cry until the other the next day. We were walking back to English Harbour to go and unpack the boat and all the rest of it, and um, I saw someone from One Ocean Crew. And uh, and then we had a big hug, and then I cried then because it, it had been so emotional that race, you know, with a with a competitor that you can't see a rival that you can't see at any point. You're not talking to. There's no communication. You can't you know? And yet, like for forty days, like our both the thoughts on our boats had been like obsessed with the other crew, you know. So that was quite a sort of cathartic moment when we sort of. Presumably, because you like six times a day, the thing that was dragging you out of your cabin to get going again, which I need to, it becomes like the whole focus of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think, you know, when I was doing the, the training, I did my training in Timmouth and I, you know, met a crew that did it this year. And um, 
they they said, oh, you know, like the people that race it, you know, they come out and they all look miserable and grumpy and at the end and, you know, if it hasn't gone right and blah, blah, blah. But I, I actually just don't know how you would do it if you if you did it leisurely in a leisurely fashion. I think yeah. I would go mad, you know, if you didn't have that to... You need some distraction and the... From, from New Year's Eve onwards, really, you've got these kind of three weeks of sort of nothingness. You know, there's no marker in that time. You know, you don't see anyone. Even the nature, the, we saw dolphins and and whale to begin with. But that, the, that the, the, you have to be kind of lucky on the nature front, yeah. you know. But that, that kind of dissipates a little bit as you, as you go along. So... You, you know, if you didn't have another crew to race against, so you get these, you know, obviously there's the race to be the first boat and the whole thing. Then there's the race to, to be the um, the female race, the female trophy. Um, and then there's a, a different boat class because most of them are Ranox. Then there's another boat class as well, but the fast ones are the Ranox. But then within, you know, those are the trophy boats. You get your Belmont watch or whatever. But then there, there are loads of mini races that sort of go on, you know. And ours was like one of the closest races that that had, you know, that they'd ever had. I think I'm enjoying the, and I think this year they had some really close races as well. And occasionally you get it when people you get two boats that will see each other, you know, for the almost the whole journey. They're they're kind of that. That is really that's quite rare, I think, you know. But you do get these mini rivalries yeah. that just emerge, you know. And all you, do, you know, we did. I think we're the fourth, fourth fastest female four ever to have done it. That's awesome. Which is pretty good. Um, and then, um, y- you know, we beat like there was this we, when we were in Lagomera in our boatyard, we were next to these this military boat. So it was two men, two women, I think, all fitness trainers, like absolutely hard as nails. Um, and we beat them. And they got, I think they got like a world record for fastest mixed boat or something like that. And we were like, come on, <laughs> you know. So faster, yeah, yeah, you know. So, so we we, um, we wanted to show that the you know a group of middle aged women could still be athletic and we could compete at the highest level. Um, and ocean rowing is quite democratic, I think, in in that way, you know. And obviously, it's kind of a long endurance sport to which women are pretty good. Yeah. Um, like you say, you always need a little bit of luck. Um, and, you know, obviously weather kind of, you, you know, has a plays a part. I mean, they did, the organisers have said, you know, they have said at some point a female crew will win it. I'm not sure now it's becoming so ultra competitive that I'm not sure if that, I think maybe the window has sort of closed for a, a mixed or maybe a, I think a mixed there was a mixed crew this year was did very well um I think a mixed crew could win it um and in one year a pair won it but I mean it's this guy and I've forgotten his name but this absolutely like insane intense ocean runner and he's just like a you know he's a kind of he just rows all the time yeah 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 absolutely um but yeah I it would be nice to see a female a mixed crew How- win it Hopefully one day we get to see it. I mean, to me, like the fact that this challenge is also a race at the same time is it's just yeah. crazy. I just hope none of the Oxford Brooks rowers find out that, you know, you can do battle paddling across the Atlantic <laughs> if you stay within each other's side because then I guess the next training camp, Henry, Henry's going to take them on. That's the... essentially what it is, battle paddling across the Atlantic. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
like you said, though, that kind of gives it more of a reason, reason to do it. I was amazed. It's, you have 38 crews doing it this year as well. Yeah. Uh, it's like quite a lot of people doing it. It's a big, it's a big deal now. It's a yeah. big event. Big waiting list, I think. And so now they've opened it out to the Pacific. Um, so I think this year was the first Atlantic campaign specific race, um, which obviously I think is not, you know, mentally it's not, you know, it's not whole ocean. You're going from Hawaii to you know, Monterey to Hawaii. Um, but they, they want someone, they want you to have done the Atlantic before you do the Pacific mm. race because in some ways it's, I think the first two weeks are harder. So you, you have to get in terms of the navigation. Mm-hmm. So the navigation is like you could, you could mess up your navigation in the first couple of weeks at the Atlantic. It wouldn't really matter too much. Sure. But I think in the Pacific race, you have to get onto a kind of certain kind of path and get the proper winds. And that's quite tricky. So, um, but I, I, don't, I don't mind the thought of leaving Monterey and arriving in Hawaii. I think that would be quite nice. Well, specifically, they call it the, the peaceful ocean. So I know. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure it is. Yeah, I think it's more difficult in terms of navigation. I don't think anyone had. I don't think there were any kind of capsizes or kind of big problems mm-hmm. in that way. I think if you asked the real hardcore ocean rowers, that I have asked the real, one of the real hardcore ocean rowers, which the hardest, hardest ocean is. And they say the Indian Ocean. Yeah, probably because of the currents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, our coach, I think, is. I think he capsized in the Indian Ocean. Um, for the sake of your sharks. Yeah. yeah. I wanted Sorry, to sharks. ask you in terms of like the aftermath of the event. Like, obviously, once you like came back to England, like, what was, what did you like gain from it that you didn't expect going into the event? Like, what was it like? It, any sort of exposure or being picked up by the media or inspiration or maybe you got some nice messages from like some women or mothers around the world that you've inspired like what what, what was that like for you that's when really, that's a really bizarre little thing that happened just towards the right the end of the boat where you know my instagram messages because i was kind of writing them directly from the boat whereas normally you'll have somebody on land who'll kind of you know do the story you know I, we kind of engaged with quite a lot of people and um this woman that told us that her son was like four or five that became really obsessed with our row and sort of set up a little ocean rowing boat in the front garden you know, in the front bedroom or whatever it was with tennis rackets as the oars and oh. you know and we recorded a message for him on the last day of the boat and um you know that that really did i know i always find it so hard when you talk about inspiring people because it always sounds a bit nah you know mm. absolutely <laughs> were inspiring people and we were at the rowing club the other day you know one of the girls in the performance squad or performance squad she goes are you nebiers and i said yeah she goes my mum follows your journey all across the ocean in the mothership you know and she read all your instagram posts you know and I was actually kind of, I was surprised about that because I am a cynical old hack at heart, probably, you know. So <laughs> it's quite, you know, that 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 really, you know, I did feel like people really got engaged by our story and enjoyed following us. Um, and and I think that that's really, you, you know, I really enjoy that. Um, I think that just simply knowing what you're capable of and knowing how hard you push yourself so that even you know even when going gets really tough you know that you're going to be able to get through it and it's a really weird thing about sleep because sleep is one of those things that people get really obsessed by 
you know, and you know, like, oh, I can't sleep or I've had a bad sleep. I'm not going to be able to function today or whatever it is. You know, I would say, and I wasn't expecting this probably, that that the, the row has completely removed any kind of anxiety that I would ever have about sleep because you can function on a, on a small amount of sleep. Your body will get through it. If you're that exhausted, you will eventually fall asleep. You know, it kind of, you know, it removes. And that, I mean, honestly, if you can, you can sleep in an ocean rowing boat, which is being thrown everywhere, which is with bangs and crashes. And, you know, sometimes we just have really, really, really deep sleeps. You know, when the alarm go off, you'd be like, well, where am I? You know, I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, because you've been dreaming about being on land. Never, I once, once in the whole of those six weeks, once dreamt that I was at sea and ne- all other dreams I had are on land. Wow. Know? And I almost never dream about being on the sea either now. Oh, okay. It's really odd. You know, I, I, you know, it's more that I dream that I've been given the chance to row across the ocean again. <laughs> And I have to get rid of it. I have to get ready for it, but I'm not ready, if that if that makes sense. Sure. It's like the, another version of you have to take your finals, but you haven't done your revision. <laughs> you know. um, but I, I think that that's um, just that resilience. Um, and, and also that kind of sense of peace with yourself that, that uh, without wishing to sound too morbid, that if I got knocked down by a bus tomorrow, you know, I know that, I feel very happy in myself that I've done this incredible thing that I've been out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in, in a rowing boat that so few people has in the whole world. And, you know, I don't think of myself as an extraordinary person, but I've done an extraordinary thing. Um, and that's something that, you, you know, you do think that you can die happy, you know, if you've done something like that. Um, so, and I think maybe I wasn't kind of expecting kind of perhaps that kind of peace of mind that comes from doing something quite as challenging as that. Yeah, that's 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 magical. And, you know, it's not just being in the middle of the ocean, it's the fact that you've completed, came back, inspired. Like I think I think that is in itself extraordinary. And like I don't think non extraordinary people don't get up to challenges like this. I think possibly <laughs> you might have to give yourself a little bit more credit than that. Maybe. <laughs> but it's funny then and then the, the group of younger women that I told you about, I think they're called Ocean Sheroes. Um so you could look them up. But they they so they actually describe themselves in the same way. They sort of ordinary women doing extraordinary things, you know. Mm. So yeah, for them. Yeah, I think but then we're all we're all just ordinary people, all yeah. capable of extraordinary things, just finding out what you're capable of. Yeah, I think that's something an interesting point you said about the sleep uh, is something in in rowing. Certainly, as you get to the top end, where you're trying to make everything perfect—the perfect amount of sleep, the perfect food—yeah, all of these things perfect—and you can get so stressed when it's not in that way. Um, I think it's important to understand that yeah, you're capable of performance even in a non-perfect environment. Yeah. And I think yeah, the sleep thing's a funny one. I did when I, I um, opened a business with my wife seven years ago. And uh, the final day before we opened, we worked, Pete worked with me for 36 hours without stopping in order to wow. get ready to open. Yeah. Which I used to think was quite impressive, but then having heard your lack of sleep, <laughs> I actually think it's not that big a deal. Um, but even after I did that, I remember telling you, I think at the opening party, talking to one of my wife's friends and saying, oh, you, you said, yeah, we, we've just done the last 36 hours. To, and she was like, you can't do that. Mm. And I was like, no, I have. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I yeah. will. I I already have, 
and hearing people be like, no, you just that's not possible. You couldn't do it. Like even having achieved things like that, some people will. Yeah, they just don't. I know. Yeah. yeah, and that goes. But that's what I was saying about people who they they can't accept that we don't have a boat next to us. You know, because they can't imagine why, how anyone could possibly let fallen out into boat. But it is that kind of, you know, it's like surely there is a boat next to you. I I think the more I find out about this challenge, the more like fascinated I am by it, about like the demands, the challenges. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I thought that's what was coming. No, no, don't don't look at me like that. I don't. definitely heading that way. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to kind of have that peer pressure on me now. But uh, no, I, I I'm just so fascinated because like, oh yeah, I've rode across the Atlantic, cool, cool, cool. But like, when you actually get into the details, the ins and outs, the every day, the like what you had to do hour by hour, the demands, the challenges where you had to give up, sacrifice, other, like, it's it's mind blowing. It's nothing short of short of mind blowing and. Uh, I'm so glad that we're able to like share this story and like what you've done and achievements like with other people and like I, I hope more more good comes out of this for you still like years and and t- and like months after after you've done it and it's it's incredibly impressive and the fact that you you're the fourth fastest finisher too like that's I think that just sums it up you know like I I don't really have of the female fools I would add in but yeah yeah. Here we go, trying to take away from the ma- <laughs> from the achievement. Yeah, yeah Stop I would. Doing that. Um, Stop doing that. Having spoken to a lot of amazing people, I think who've done really amazing things. I think a common trait of uh, inspirational people is they'll never claim to be inspirational. I think maybe that's part of it. You know. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's so easy to to explain it all away. But I also think having again having sat down with people. Um, sort of listen to you go through it it's nice to actually go when you actually revisit it and think no that was that was actually pretty bloody tough but yeah yeah well that's what I, I love doing these things honestly because I just done you know going to the to Marlborough next week and giving the talk I love doing it because I love talking about it and and one of the the kind of you know in the first few weeks and months afterwards it stays very fresh in your mind mm. and you know even actually even when you kind of even when you first finish you know the, the sort of days have all kind of rolled into one which is something you know writing an instagram diary or whatever it is every day is important but i'd say maybe like after a year you know it starts to become more of a memory mm. you know and that's quite painful you know because you want to kind of reclaim those feelings and, and then reimagine it and just remember what it was all like um, you know, and last year when you see the new set of boats go off and and that's very hard. And like last year that was hard and then this year, you know, it's gonna be even harder, you know, and quite a few of the old kind of the, the former rowers go out to La Bamera and I have kind of mixed feelings about that. You know, mm. it, it it's sort of, you know, like you the Olympics, you do you go out and, and hang around or do you you know, I don't know, you know, like at the same time, I'm, you know, maybe I feel like that's like in three or four years afterwards, I could I could go and do that, and yeah. I'd I'd feel happy. But um, I I suppose I've got too much sort of desire to to go out and be in it and do something else. You know, um, the main two Calderwood, she said, right, that's it. You know, I'm happy. Like I don't need to do any more challenges. You know, so for what I've said, you know, that I, I could die happy having done this. I. I still kind of tempted to do. I'd be tempted if someone else came along and said, "And you know, we've got a place in the boat, and we're going in six months' time." 
Yeah. You know, I'd be very happy to to join. Maybe, you know, maybe not the Atlantic. Um, or maybe the Atlantic. I'm not sure I'd want to do the Atlantic in four again because we had such a perfect experience really in the end yeah, of it. Go on after, stay in it. You know, all the trials and all the rest of it, but it you know, it all went so well, you know. Um, maybe a different kind of combo. I, I don't we talked a lot about on the boat about what it would take to do it solo. And um I, I think that's another level myself. I, oh, I, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't think I'm great at being on my own, so I'm not sure that one's for me. And yeah, I think you could. There's a lot more chance of losing yourself. Yeah, yeah, mentally, yeah. Mentally, not just uh, in in the ocean, yeah. within your own head. Yeah, I think so. You know that that thing talking about the things you learn. You know, and that division of skills, and you've got four of you on the boat. You know, it's shared responsibilities and you each got a different area of expertise and take on different abilities and you work together as a team and it can't operate unless you're all working together as a team yes you have a skipper but you know or, you know you let somebody to be the skipper because ultimately the point about the skipper is that you can have to abandon the ship you need someone to make the decision to abandon yeah. the ship you know so um and you know and, and to make your final decisions or other kind of key moments but uh, it sort of blows my mind as the as the solo rower that you have to do all of that yourself you know the navigation and the winter maker and the you know it's then you know yeah it's a huge responsibility you said like you get so tired you sort of fall asleep and you wake up and you're trying to take your shoes off and realize you yeah if you fall asleep and you wake up and the hatch is open or you wake up and you're about to jump hot yeah oh just yeah, I know. I mean, I, honestly, there, I I got um, one of the girls that crossed last year, and her Instagram diary was good. And you know, she imagined she's brought, she saw this person coming up out of the waves and climbing into her cabin. You know, she was hallucinating like that. But she had the worst thing that happened to her. I think was that it, the hatch door shut when she was outside and she couldn't open it again. So she had to, and then she had there was like. She had to get her toolkit. Was luckily not in a cabin. It was in a hatch, and she had to get some store out, and she had to store off the lock. So and and then, and honestly, it wasn't. She had to go along with it, not singing properly for the rest of the journey. But that was the only way she could get back in the cabin. Number one, wouldn't be able to get back in the cabin. Yeah. She broke the she she uh, she was a solo. She you know not in the Atlantic campaigns, but she. Um, you know, she she kind of was in Tenerife. I think she went Tenerife, Lanz, uh, Tenerife, um, Barbados, and um, so she absolutely kind of waited until she thought she had the best weather to break the record, and she did it phenomenally quickly. Wow! So I think like somewhere between fourteen and forty-five days. I mean, it, just astonishing. So, last, wow. You know? Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, well, I don't think I'm tough enough for it at this moment in time. Definitely. But uh, no, it's it's hugely impressive, and like I'm I'm just in awe of that achievement. So no, I'm like I think you should be proud of yourself for forever, basically, yeah. for for even this because it's it's a huge feat. And also like you were the first crew just com- uh, com- comprised of just mothers that that has done it as well. Though I think there was a there's a crew called the Yorkshire Mums who did it quite famously a few years before us and they were so they are the oldest crew that have done it although i think there's a crew this year that are trying to be the oldest female for now that will beat the yorkshire mums to that record 
Um, so I think all the Yorkshire mums were mums, I presume. For, well, they were actually called the Yorkshire mums. I think they were called like the Yorkshire roses or something like that. Okay. But, but the media sort of dubbed them. The, they, they had quite a lot of media attention and the media dubbed them the Yorkshire mums. Um, but so they did it in 68 days or something like that. So I think that was... Um, I think that the mum crews that had done it before had done it more as a sort of experience or, or a challenge rather than to kind of go for the for a, a really speedy time. And I think so we were the probably the first crew of mums that have sort of tackled it in that way to be to, to try and you know be up there with the best. With the with the fierce competitive spirit coming yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. It's uh, awesome to hear your story. I'm glad we, we got this set up. I think um, it's one thing to talking to um, Olympians and and seeing them, like we said, almost sort of in that perfect environment, having an incredible performance. But I also think it's like super inspiring to just to show that age or having kids or uh, you know jobs and everything else. Like you know, I still sort of believe that a lot of things are excuses, and I think if you want to make it happen, you can. And I like talking to people who make it difficult for other people to make an excuse. You know what I mean? Like, you know, oh, we, but I couldn't possibly because of that. Like, Matt, yeah, you, you haven't got that excuse anymore. And I think, you know, it's nice. You know, there are some people, there are probably very few people that want to go to the Olympics. And it's great to hear that message. I think there are a lot more people that kind of, that this message is going to resonate. It's just like, however difficult that task is, whatever's in front of you, you know, if you want to achieve fantastic things, like it's possible. And I think you've proved that. Great. Thank you. I guess we've just got some quick fire on questions to ask you. Yeah. Um, I guess the first question, it might be a quick answer. It might not be, but obviously (laughs) it's okay. You're you're a CEO. Obviously you've gone to Oxford. You're a former Oxford blue. You've been rowing basically since your teenage years. How has rowing like helped you in your, life after rowing and like in your business career and like what sort of lessons like do you carry with with yourself on a daily basis because of that uh i think that's um well time management is a is a really good thing and i i see this in my kids as well and i i I look at my kids and and how they manage their schooling and and their rowing training i'm i'm kind of in and their resilience that they're building from it i i'm in awe and i think that's a a reminder to me that it's not a normal thing to be able to go out and sit on the docks and wait a, an hour in freezing cold weather before you start a head race and then go out and do it all over again. And, you know, I know that we're using my kids as an example here. You know, my, my son went Strathclyde this summer. He went out and he did his 14, you know, he did his first um, race in a single skull. He went out, they, they got the timing wrong and it was raining, you know, so they went back. Uh, and then they went out again to do the race again, and they messed up the timing again. And then they went back in, and they had to wait for out, and then they had to do it again. Criminal, you know. And and you know, I just thought, wow, like you, you know, I think I might even have cried by that point, you know. But they didn't, and you know, I think that 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 sort of going out in in all weathers and getting you know getting up early in the morning and putting through the pain and and pushing yourself. Um, that will always help you in difficult times in, in your life um, mentally, but also physically. And I do sometimes, particularly as you age, um, I think this is a really important thing 
that sometimes I look at friends of mine who are trying to get fit and they've got no idea how to push their bodies, you know, and they, they never have. And, you know, to get to the age of 45 or 50 and then suddenly take up a kind of exercise regime, you know, it's really hard, you know, and and you realise that if you've pushed your body that hard at a younger age and, and really trained to, a, to an elite level, that is something that will always stay with you and and stand you in good stead. So your body will always have that that memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think so. It gives you sort of physical and mental and physical advantages, um, you, you know, and, and working all in a weekly magazine, you know, working to deadlines, um, everything that you have to do as a journalist. Um, I think it sort of, it helps you. Uh, journalists can be quite kind of crazy determined people as well you know it sort of helps you with with every aspect of life and and you know it is that ultimately it's that teamwork you know yes you, as a rower you can decide to be a single scholar that that's a different decision that you might make if you want all of the responsibility to come down on on you um and there is something attractive about that i think you wouldn't want to do it in an ocean rowing boat but i like being in my single um but nothing quite replicates that feeling of being in a team and winning together in a team and and that feeling of of being together i think and and i try and um as a you know now as a ceo and being a leader i i try and kind of get that feeling with my staff you know just that feeling of all being in it together and trying to make them understand when people are sort of sniping or moaning I and mean, everyone's going to have a moan sometimes you know that's a normal bit um you know, it, it's counterproductive to kind of achieving what you want to achieve. That's a fantastic answer. Yeah, really good, yeah. Yeah. Um, the question I, I quite often ask for athletes is, you know, if you could go back to the start of your career, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think, obviously, you didn't have a career per se in rowing, um, but I would be interested in sort of seeing that, yeah, as, as you started on your path in rowing, is there, is there any advice that you would give yourself if you went back there? And also, what advice would you give someone, I guess, if they wanted to do the Atlantic passing? Yeah, I think the first one, I think that quite basic advice, and I sort of touched on it earlier on, um, and that is to, to eat properly and and to, to manage your body properly, because I think that, that fear of being injured or that because I'd been injured so much is probably what put me off trying to go for the Olympics because I, I just thought, well, I'm not going to make it and I'll be injured and and it won't work. Um, so I think to, that is really important. And, you know, you get the support now and, and but, but that to give yourself um, the time and, and the rest, I think people are better at doing that now than, than they are. Maybe that's still not possible within the Olympic system to sort of treat the person as the, as an individual, you know, you, you you, if you don't adapt to the regime, then may, maybe you know it's 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 not for you, and that that's that can be you're sort of adapting your individual needs together with the team needs is important. I think, and that that can take time to do it. I think. I mean, um, it does make me think. Do I do I regret not having um, pushed myself further? And I would say um, I didn't. <laughs> And now I do slightly because I hadn't been injured in five years really seriously since I went back. And yes, my training name isn't that great, but it does make me think if I'd had those things, if I'd taken, if I'd eaten better, if I'd not got injured so much that perhaps I would have been able to kind of perform to a 
to a higher level. So mm-hmm. I, I think those things are kind of are really key. Um, I, I also, like, I will always try and push too hard on all fronts. So I will work hard, train hard, and I'll try and play hard. That's why you're a CEO. Time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so occasionally I have to kind of remember ever, you know, like this week as an example, today I was supposed to have rode in Wallingford before this, you know, then um supposed to do this interview, then I was supposed to go to the knee and load the boats ready for Bedford regatta, and then I was supposed to get up at five o'clock in the morning and drive to Bedford and then race tomorrow and then, you know, do my normal week's work next week. Um probably, you know, it was fine, it would have been fine, but probably quite a lot for, you know, anyone's weekend at this, you know. Um, so just, you know, so I am kind of, you know, it's quite nice, like it's nice to be able to do this and not have to say, oh, well, I've got to finish at such and such a time and I've got to, you know, rush off. Yeah. Um, so now I've forgotten the second question. <laughs> for the for the Atlantic crossing, advice for someone who wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you, you have to really plan ahead and that that's the most difficult thing for the Atlantic crossing. So I was very lucky and... and not everyone will have that experience and um the other area that we were lucky is that we got sponsorship in two big um we got tritax big box and british gas um and we had some sort of benefactors as well that connected kind of with the boat and the and one of the charities that we were supporting felix fund um but some people have to go out and they are fighting for every thousand pounds that they raise you know, they're, they're getting that £120,000 together um, in those two years before. So so that is, you know, it's an incredible challenge in that way. Um, and you have to be really organised and really determined um, and you have to have a really clear plan if you're in a crew boat of who is doing what. Um, and you do sometimes see, you know, crews that suddenly there'll be a departure from the crew before, you know, before the boat goes across the ocean and... and crews do kind of change shape um and that's because the load is too much for some people's you know they can't so um you know i do that ultimately my 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 main piece of advice for for anyone running across the ocean in a crew boat is to make sure that you all have the same mindset and and i think broadly speaking that in our boats we did have the same mindset you know that um you know, I was definitely the most competitive, or my friend Joe, maybe I was the most outwardly competitive. Joe's probably as competitive as me. Um, sort of a, a bit more quietly, maybe. And and Pippa and um, did the, the sisters, um, slightly less competitive, but hard as nails. And so, you know, kind of willing to be brought along. Uh, that's a, 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 just as a little postscript. Um, you know, I I I've had kind of an easier time since I got back. You know, and I I've got this job, which is an amazing thing. We got back. Um, Joe's got divorced from her husband. Um, it did. Pip and Did's father died, and he he was quite a kind of key part of our journey. You know, my I don't have my parents anymore. So um, Did's and Pip's parents being there in in uh, Lagomera before we set off was really important to me. You know sort of it was like they were my surrogate parents and and when their dad died it was very sad for all of us um but before he died did discovered um that she had bowel cancer so she'd go across the ocean um with bowel cancer 
and she didn't you know maybe she had a few symptoms on the boat but it's quite hard to see that when you're on the boat you know everyone's digestive systems are messed up but when she got back she sort of found that that had kind of you know her symptoms didn't go away that anyway she discovered that she had bowel cancer and um and it was stage three i think so it's a tumor that had slightly spread to the lymph nodes so she had an operation to remove the tumour and then she got chemo because it had just spread, which her oncologist said was kind of lucky because that put her in the bracket of, of having chemo rather than if you just have a tumour, they just remove the tumour. Anyway, um, that she had her treatment and she's gone through it and um, she's, you, you know, she's fine and she's doing really well and we're having our you know we see each other kind of through the year but we're having our kind of reunion in in a couple of weeks time you know pre the race start kind of thing um and that that is just you know again it seems cliched sometimes but that is just a carpe diem message you know you really do never know what's around the corner and and you know you have to kind of make the most of everything as as much as you possibly can because you don't know what to expect and and we've all been through kind of different challenges where we've, we've, you know, when we've come home and, um, you know, they, 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 one of the things they say about the Atlantic row is it will change your life. And, um, I think all of our lives have changed and not in the way that we expected them to, you know, sometimes that may force a change. So like taking on a new job or, or maybe getting divorced, you know, but in did seem Pips's case, it was having to deal with unexpected things that life had thrown at them. But, you know, behind that, they, they always have that, that you know, the strength of knowing what they've done and knowing that their dad saw them do it. So. Yeah, so that's not an example of if you want to go out and do something, you test yourself or, yeah. or if you're thinking about having a go at something, there you go, like that's that's the reason to. I'm getting quite emotional just hearing that answer, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that you guys have done and like I'll forever be in awe of, um, of that journey that you've been through. Yeah. I guess I wanted to ask some more questions, but I think there is there is no there's no question that's going to follow on better after after that answer. So I think well, thank you so much once again for coming down. I really really enjoyed this episode. This is our longest podcast. Oh God, is it? We've we've ever <laughs> done. Uh, we're closing on four hours. No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of recording. Of recording. Yeah. I'm not joking. I am. I am wow. not. But I've enjoyed every single oh, minute. Incredible. Oh I've enjoyed every single minute of that, but I think that concludes everything for today's episode. So on that note, easy there. Cue the music.